The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Let's fucking go. Oh, we're live. Hello, <laughs> Dave Smith. Hello, Good sir. Good to see you, my brother. Yeah, it's great to be back. Fun times last night. Unbelievable, man. Yeah, that was your first uh, voyage aboard the mothership. Yes, it sure was. <laughs> if you're going to get abducted by aliens at a comedy club, it's the one to, to be at. Yeah, imagine. Imagine if they showed up there. I imagine if they were going to pick a comedy club to start abducting <laughs> people, it would be yours. Well, they would know that we, we'd be open. <laughs> that's that's you know, true. The improvs would probably like charge them. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas you would greet, you would welcome them in. Yeah, I'd put them on the guest list. It is. I know. I just. I feel like I'm just saying the same thing everyone does. But the club is really amazing, man. You did an incredible job. It's pretty dope. Well, it wasn't me. I mean, it was sort of, but it was a lot of people, and uh, a lot of it. Richard Weiss, the uh, architect and designer, he's the fucking man. He did an incredible job. The whole thing's just very bizarre, you know? Well, if it wasn't mine, I'd really be able to appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's true. <laughs> but it's cool to see something, you know, like uh, there's something cool about having a concept in your head and then seeing it manifest into reality. Yeah. Because I remember, you know, you talking about this over the last couple of years, like we're going to do this and it's going to be like this. And then like, it's cool to see it materialize. I've never done anything like this before, obviously. But I mean, to, to, to have an idea and to just like go all in on this idea and just really try to cut in zero corners and just do the best version of it. And there was a lot of delays because, you know, we said, okay, let's change this, let's change that, let's do this, let's do that. And when I had an idea, you know, an idea to change things, it's just like you have to kind of follow through with it. You just, you know, it's like you have one chance to do it right and you don't want to go back and close for two weeks so right. you can do new construction and fix something. And so we just, you know, took a long ass fucking time. You know, there's a lot of people saying, when are you ever, you're not opening a close bullshit. <laughs> it's all bullshit. They just didn't. I knew once it got, I'm like, talk all that shit. Cause once this thing gets open, they're all going to want to come. <laughs> and, the, and the ones who can't, <laughs> a lot of FOMO. Dude, I thought, do you remember this is like uh was it like a month ago or something like that uh you texted me or i texted you congratulating you that uh for the club opening it was like right around when it opened and uh you texted me back uh i can wait for you to come see it i think you meant to say i can't wait yeah for you to come I'm sure see it. but i thought there was something so <laughs> funny about just texting me like i was if that was your way of telling me you don't want me at the club you're like, <laughs> i can i can wait i can wait for you to see it actually oh that's hilarious it's it has been a problem though because there's you know a lot of people want to come and some of them are just you know people are weird like that that want a headline and you know that they know like you know that you're not really a headliner <laughs> like what are you talking about there's now I'm in the position where I was talking to Adam about it because I'm trying to find a, a, a he's trying to find me a weekend and then he was like I was like oh, I'm free this weekend and he's like you know I offered that to Schultz but let me see and then I have to be like you know you don't want to book Andrew Schultz man he harasses the staff and stuff so like you don't I just have to lie about my friends you're like he's actually gotten really into drugs man he's been assaulting people you don't want to have him here yeah he like loses it on stage yeah it's really not cool yells at people <laughs> it's weird when you hear stories like that like someone like losing it yelling at people and shit i've heard like weird stories about people you yeah know? i think the pressure of stand-up like the constant performance it's like 
it's like running an engine at very hot at high RPMs for many, many miles. Like things blow. And we're all kind of crazy people to begin with. Yeah. So some people have that more in check than others. But yeah, I don't want to name any names, but I've seen a, I've seen a couple hot ones. Yeah. In my day. Yeah. 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 It's they're the most fun people though. Yeah. That fucking green room, like the hang in the green room, it's like one of the greatest things of all time. It's just excellent, man. It's it's set up like you can just tell it was designed by a comedian. You know what I mean? Or at least like there was uh that perspective was taken into account. And tonight, uh after the show we'll go to the bar because the bar becomes like a speakeasy at eleven PM. It's a private club from eleven Ooh. PM on. So it's open to the public until eleven. And then after the shows, the comics and the staff all come down and hang. Amen. It's the best, dude. Hell yeah. We just like cr- created what I thought would be the perfect environment to develop comedy. So there's two nights of open mics, which I think is very important. And, uh, you know, Bill Burr and I were talking about this uh, when he was in town. And he was like, that's something that a lot of these clubs just forgot. They just want to fill the place every night and make a lot of money. But you got to have a farm team. You got to have guys coming up you got to have you know places where women can go on stage where men can go on stage where anybody can go on stage where you could just fucking just you don't have to have any experience you don't have to have nothing you just have to have a dream and some ideas and a sense that you think you could be funny and you can get up yeah and when you know one of the things that's cool about it and i think a lot of this is like because it's your club that there's just um there's this kind of like a. Uh, there's just this thing in you where you're like, you can be fearless here. You know, yeah. this is like uh, to borrow a fra- like a safe space to yeah. be a comedian. Like, yeah. go for it. And it's almost because it's because it's your club, and you know the crowd knows that they know that like they're coming for comedy yeah. here. And it's just great because that's one of the things that's uh, especially in cities across America now. Like in terms of like regular showcase clubs, it's different when you go out and like headline because that's kind of like your crowd coming. Right. But just random like spots and stuff, that's a lot of comics that's kind of in the back of their mind. Like, oh man, is there going to be someone here who's looking to get offended at something yeah. I'm saying? And that's that's a there real are, thing. There are, I've seen it. I've seen it at clubs. It's fucking bizarre where someone will start a premise and then someone will yell out, bullshit, fuck that. Yeah, like they'll they'll yell out like to like virtue. They like have my flag of virtue. I will hold it up in this this crowd of people that are trying to enjoy something that's obviously not real. Damn. It's called stand up comedy. You know yeah. what it is. <laughs> I, I remember I I had a bit about this on my uh, in my hour uh, that I put out in 2017, and it was just like right when Donald Trump you know like first came into office. But I remember like working out stuff at clubs in New York City, and if you started a premise about Donald Trump, you could feel the tension in the room where people are being like, you better not like him. Like, you better get yeah. to the point where you're against him. Like, are you on my team? Are you not? You're not on my team yet. Like, you could, like, feel it in, uh, you know. Especially New York. Yeah. Dude, I was there when he got elected. And uh, me and my friend Cam Haynes, were you there, Jamie? We were walking down the street. And Jamie, too. We were walking down the street, and there was an anti-Trump protest. And I was watching this guy. And this guy, this fucking stereotypical liberal progressive white guy, was walking down the street and he was he was chanting out, Donald Trump, KKK, uh, racist, sexist, anti-gay, Donald Trump. And then he saw this black couple walking towards him. 
and he starts going, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. He just like on cue. <laughs> he's like, he got a, oh yeah, 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 that part. Black Lives Matter. He just starts, and I'm like, this is adorable. These people are adorable. It's, yeah, it is really, it's something bonk. He really, Donald Trump, um, he broke a lot of brains. Yeah. I don't know. There's, it's a really weird impact that he had on people where he just got them so angry that they could no longer think straight. I remember I was living in the Upper West Side of Manhattan at the time um, when, when he first got elected. And I remember seeing like some of those like protests. I remember seeing, you know, like I remember the, a couple with like their little girl, like maybe she was like 12 or something like that. And she was holding up a worst president ever sign. And you're like, OK, first off, he's had the job for two months. Uh, second off, this is very disrespectful to all of the horrible presidents before him. Like L- LBJ slaughtered like two million Vietnamese. He doesn't even get like a shot at contention right. here. Right. You're already giving it to Trump. Like, right. give him time. He'll do some bad. He's things. He's probably involved in the Kennedy but, assassination as well. Almost certainly. Yeah, probably. But you don't want to talk seems, about that. Seems like he didn't like JFK. Seems like maybe he liked the CIA. <laughs> it seems seems that way. But you don't want to talk about it too much, Joe. You could lose your Fox News gig that way. <laughs> You know what I love about LBJ? He used to take a shit with the reporters, like standing there yeah. with a stall open. <laughs> he was a wild dude. dude. Just take a shit. Come on, come on, let's talk. He would just sit there and fucking grunt one out. While... It's the it's the strangest but yet most alpha thing to possibly do. Yeah, to just comfortably shit. Come watch me shit while you while you talk to someone about Cambodia. Yeah, but yeah, that's a wild move watching people shit. <laughs> It's a wild move. Watch it. It's it's more wild to just have the confidence to just shit in front of people. He's like, I'm the fucking president. <laughs> yeah, he was just, I guess. Yeah, he, he was never a bad guy. Been elected. He would have never been elected. Never. Well, you can't say never, because if Biden was running against him, he probably would have been elected. Yeah, Jesus. Oh, this, B- Biden was only fifty at the time. The fact that he's running again is so wild. When you watch him talk, the fact that there's no leadership that can find a solution to this, because there really is no solution. I mean, we've bantered about it, you and I, and a lot of other people have as well. Like, what are they gonna do? Like, what is, what is the, other than Biden dying, like very soon, and then someone stepping up in a big way that which makes is not sense. which is not beyond the realm of possibility he's older than the average life expectancy i believe already mm-hmm. not saying he will die but that that is possible um i'm sure there are a lot of people like in the democratic establishment who have been like i, I could just imagine there's a boardroom with like very powerful people meeting who they're like okay we're getting them out. What's the plan? Like, how do we do this? And I think they just cannot come up with one. I can't I come think, up with one. Well, I mean, the, I'm not a political strategist, but, uh, you know, I know the landscape. I yeah. know who's out there. He's perhaps brilliantly insulated himself by making Kamala Harris his vice president. It's not a bad because move. Because they're like, they're like, well, we can't have her. It's like with Dan so, Quayle, with Bush. What do you want? Yeah, you think you Bush is dumb? Guy? Look at this fucking guy. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's a good move. I mean, it's kind it's kind of a bitch move though. You know what it's kind of like? It's kind of like those uh, headliner comics who bring terrible openers. <laughs> yeah, that's, the, that's what it is. You know? It's like, like yeah, you really want to do an hour after Kamala Harris? Like, <laughs> all right. <laughs> the crowd's dead, but all right. Time is like time. It just passes and Time is something Dude, that we're all aware of. But I gotta say, I don't understand a joke because sometimes you'll see it and you're like, "All right, you're doing a thing here. Like, this isn't real. You're like, is this? Are you like, is this a strategy of some sort to just say nothing and like sound as dumb as possible? Because you can't be this dumb. I think it's panic. 
I Maybe. It's, it's, I think it's anxiety, and I think it's panic, and I think no one can understand, even you and I who perform live in front of strangers all the time, we would never be able to understand the kind of pressure that must be on a person who's d deeply unqualified for the job, and then all of a sudden finds herself in there through, you know, some, I mean, he went out of his way to say that he was going to have a black woman. Like, it was a thing that he wanted to do. It was like they had these these diversity and yes. inclusivity checkpoints that they had to reach. Which is also just a really shitty thing to do to her. It's, a, it's like a really profoundly selfish thing, if you think about it. Because if you wanted, say, you wanted to make Kamala Harris your vice president because, you know, she's a, you want a woman of color in there or whatever. The the thing to do would be to say, I'm going to find the absolute best, most qualified person and then pick her. But if you do that, like that would be more generous toward her because then it makes it look at least like she was the best person for the job. Right. Whereas if you say, I'm going to make sure I pick a, a black woman. Now you get all the the brownie points for like, right. oh, how woke you are. But now you kind of undermine her as like, well, she's the best black woman I could find. That's not necessarily yeah, the best candidate. Or, you know, so it's, it's a, a shitty move. I think it's a good thing. I've talked to a lot of intelligent people that think it's important for representation. And I'm like, I, would, I could see how you would say that in a lot of jobs, but this is probably the most important one that anyone could ever have ever. So, see, I, what I you gotta be—it's gotta be a meritocracy. Well, what's what's weird about it is it's almost as if there's some weird uh, prejudice built into that idea. Because if you if you don't believe in like superiority or inferiority of of different races or dif different groups or then, genders, right? G different genders, then you would just go, well, make it a meritocracy, yeah, and let the absolute best person have the job. And I'm confident in that system that lots of different people will be represented, right? Whereas if you're saying like, well, no, we need to make sure it's that, like, wouldn't it be more ideal to just have the best person at every job, yeah, and then to have any type of forced diversity right like what why would that not be better everyone in society is better off if the best person qualified for jobs gets those jobs yeah you want the best scientists and the best doctors and the best pilots and the best you want everyone to be the best yeah no one ever want you know no one ever wants like your surgeon to be picked based on anything other than the best at performing this surgery yes yeah you, you, you don't ever say, I want a white man doing surgery on me. <laughs> like, no. Who the fuck? Is that Chinese lady the best? Bring yeah. her in. Like, do more people survive when yeah. she does Jesus it? Christ. I'd, I'd like her. Who's the expert? Fix my brain. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's like, it's um, very similar in some ways to affirmative action, right? And affirmative action, in my, in my opinion, is you're addressing a problem without addressing the root of the problem. The root of the problem is why are so many people of color disenfranchised? Why are so many people who grow up in neighborhoods where there's rampant crime and violence and why haven't they fixed those fucking neighborhoods? They're dumping so much money into all these problems overseas. We have systemic problems in America that never get addressed. Until yeah. those and this is like generations it takes to fix these problems. Generate it's like a long-term strategy. But I've always said this, if you want to make America the best, what would be the best way to do that? Well, you want less losers, right? So what's the best way to have fewer losers? To give more people opportunities. 
So who are the people that have the least opportunities? The people that are in the most fucked places. Those are you can fix that. There's ways you could you could dump tons of money and resources into inner cities, into these problem areas with law enforcement, with with community centers, places where people could go, where they they have uh, like things to do, and people can train them in in, in whether it's athletics or uh, different jobs and different and, and show them and mentor them that's all that's yeah. not like prohibitively impossible you're not saying like they all deserve their own nuclear power plant you're, you're, <laughs> right. you know what i'm saying it's like what you're what you're saying is f- totally doable and that's the way to fix all these problems of disparity because People that grow up in wealthy communities where everyone is sort of trying to achieve things, there's a vibe of those places, and so many of those people from those places wind up succeeding. Yeah, I think it's uh, a lot of it, I think, also is that there's a very kind of like shallow narrative about what it is that keeps people in these areas down. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like, you know, um, it's just all, well, it's racism or it's systemic racism, just these kind of terms that don't, aren't specific. It's mm-hmm. like, wait, what, what is actually happening here? Right. And so much of the problem is that like, like the kind of culture and family units have just been destroyed. Like they've been decimated. And then it's like, you could, you can pump money into like the public schools there, which we do. We spend a lot of money on public schools and they're still crappy schools and the, the results are still bad. And if you're not like, you know, even back in, um, and there's a lot of like, um, uh, like Walter Williams and Thomas Sowell, who are both like two uh, mm-hmm. black conservative, really brilliant thinkers. They, they both wrote a lot about this, how like in the forties, even during, there was, you know, segregation in the South and there was like a whole bunch of horrible policies. But even back then, you know, um, you could walk around Harlem with no threat of like violence or anything like that. And family units were together. I believe the black legitimacy rate was higher than the white legitimacy rate at the time. And there were a lot of policies that came in that really destroyed like f- the, the family unit. Like and, what policies? Well, the rise of the welfare state was a really big one. Uh, it kind of subsidized single parenthood, which is it's people respond to incentives, even though it seems like mm. that's an ugly thing to think. But if you subsidize, if you pay people for having children out of wedlock, you do get more of it than you otherwise would have. And the other major one to me was the um, the war on drugs, <coughs> which I just think was absolutely devastating to these these neighborhoods. It's you know when just like with prohibition of alcohol, where we I think was still the highest uh, homicide rate in American history was a- under prohibition of alcohol. Alcohol. And um, and then when once they legalized alcohol again, it drastically reduced in the next few years. The same thing with the prohibition of drugs. You create these black markets. You create a lot of like violent crime, mm-hmm. and that's what's really destroying these these neighborhoods. Is like the violent gang culture, and it's all built and funded around drugs that would the black markets for which would not exist if we just called the whole thing off. It's just calling the whole thing off is so scary politically. Because if you were a guy like uh, Joe Biden that said, I'm going to legalize all drugs, you know, people would fucking turn on you. They'd freak the fuck out. Yeah. Well, getting the political will up to do it is something. But I mean, you even see it even with this, uh, you know, we got like 100,000 ODs a year now. And so much of it is driven by the fact that people are getting fentanyl in shit that they don't even know that's not supposed to have fentanyl in it because it's in black markets. And Joe Biden is absolutely... I mean, it's hard to like hate him so much now because he's so old and senile. It's hard to even hold him responsible. But his career, he was like 
probably the the worst person on this issue. Joe Biden, since the 80s, was pushing ramp ups in the war on drugs. He he challenged Ronald Reagan from the right, uh, partnered up with Strom Thurmond. Uh, and was was criticizing Reagan for being too soft on drugs. And then he was the one who authored uh, the crime bill yeah. that Bill Clinton signed into law. Yeah. He's just he's got a he's got a lot of death and destruction on his old hands. Yeah, that crime bill. Oof. The whole just war on drugs thing is such a strange issue because logically everyone knows that when you legalize things, and certainly when you decriminalize things, you get a, a, a giant drop in violent crime, you get mm -hmm. a giant drop in addiction. It's, it's so counterintuitive, but people are so terrified because drugs have been so devastating. Like Because I, I think that if we did legalize all drugs, and it happened quickly, you're going to have more overdoses, you're going to have more deaths, you're going to have more addicts. You're just going to, because there's gonna be more access. Yeah, but, but when you know, do people, I don't. When well, does it balance out? Well, I don't know. I think th there will be more access for sure. But I don't. I think so many of the overdoses now are because people become addicted to pain pills or become addicted to, to mm -hmm. uh, heroin and get fentanyl yes. in it. And you wouldn't have that if if drugs were legal. So you I, wouldn't have. You would have stuff like. There's not a problem with people smoking cigarettes and finding out there was fentanyl in their cigarettes. You right. know what I mean? Because right. it's not. But there would be if, or, or there could be if it was on a black market and you were just getting it from some gang member. You know? Yeah. Um. So it would reduce. Uh, I think it would reduce de uh, overdoses in that sense. Um. There's no question. It's a trade-off. There's no good, perfect solution where there's not any costs. Mm -hmm. But um. But the major benefit would be you would eliminate like. The, the gang violence yeah. and already even I think when they um and I don't have this like numbers right at the top of my head on uh, the front of my head but um the the weed trade from Mexico that used to be the big thing and I mm -hmm. think that's all but gone now not because necessarily. like necessarily it's not um apparently because there's so many states where marijuana is still illegal right um most of the illegal weed is actually being grown on state land by the cartels. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, there's a guy named John Norris. He wrote a book called Hidden War, and he came on the podcast to discuss it. He actually was a game warden and, you know, wanted to have a job, like, you know, checking fishing licenses and stuff, doing game warden stuff. And uh, he detailed it in the book how they found this creek that had been diverted and dried up, and they were trying to – they thought maybe a farmer had done this or something, some obstruction, and they traced it to this grow-up that was in the middle of the forest – and his unit became like a tactical unit because they were having gunfights with cartel members. Instead of it being like game warden, now it became like a DEA type situation right. where you're running into these public land grow ops where these guys, they take this area and they level it and they, they grow weed there. And these guys were camping there and, you know, they had guns and it's wild shit, man. It's yeah. the, the whole book is incredible. And the yeah, stories, that's very interesting. So that's 90%, he was saying, of all the illegal marijuana that's being sold in America is coming out of really? these places. Yeah. 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 There's, I mean, this is why, again, this is why I think you just got to call the whole thing off at a certain point. It's been I, a failure. I mean, we've been doing it for, what is it, 40 something years? Yeah. Or I mean, it's like, it's, or maybe more than that. Is it 50 years now? Yeah, I think right? it's 1970. 72 yeah. or something like that. It yeah, started, you know? 50 plus years. Yeah. I mean, it's like, okay. So we fought a war and the drugs won. <laughs> and now it's time to, just like with the Taliban, they're it's time just, to accept. They keep winning. Like they're winning and they're, they're killing us. Yeah. It's destroying our country. And it's not the legal ones.
It's the illegal ones. And the reason why it's destroying it is because they're illegal. Yeah. So it's also propping up the cartels. It's like they just right, you could walk right over there. People walk over here, walk right over there, and you have literally one of the scariest results of drug prohibition right there where you have insane crime and, and insane resources that the cartels have. They control the government. They control cities. Yep. It's wild shit, and it's all because of our policies. And it's interesting that we got the guy uh, in the White House who was the champion of it for those entire 50 years. I mean, maybe he wasn't in the whole 50 years, but he was in for like 40-plus of them, yeah. and he was the, the great champion of it. And now, and it's so funny that now he like you know runs on like diversity. Yeah, but I, you know, but I hired the first uh, you know, vice president who's black or whatever. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, sure, I threw you know, hundreds of thousands of them in cages but now look at me i got one right next to me yeah and yes she's an idiot but okay but it's so her. funny how dylan mulvaney is like the person they all go to whether it's bud light or the president like even the president was getting interviewed by dylan mulvaney which is like what do you why like what is the like and she's talking about day 300 of womanhood and biden's like bless your heart <laughs> Like, you know, it's so fun. <laughs> did you did you hear the thing where Joe Biden uh, lied and said he was for gay marriage since like the oh, yeah. 70s or something like that or whatever yeah, he it was? All the time. So he's yeah, he's just making stuff up. But it was so funny because it's um because he's just so old. And, you know, when old people try to say the politically correct thing and no matter how they say it, it still <laughs> yes. comes out yes. like old and wrong. You know, it's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. They're, you know, they're just like colored people could read just as good as me and you. Yeah. And you're like, oh, dude, that's the most racist thing. So he goes, he goes. He's telling the story of when he was a kid and his dad, and he saw two uh, gay people kiss. And then he goes, and then one of them walked into the bank. Like, they had a job, just like you or me. You know, like, he was like, he was, you're like, yeah, dude, they're people. Like, what are you, this was a revelation to you? Like, it still just sounds so fucked up, but he's trying to be cool. And what was the thing that he said something about, uh, just like white kids can? He was talking he's, about he said, poor people. He said, poor kids are just as bright as white kids. And you're like, oh, my God. Jesus, oh my the Freudian God. slips. Like, ah, it's like you just, but it's just also like, you know, in the same way that if any of us had like, you know, our 85 year old grandpa at the table, yeah. every now and then if they say some things, you're going to roll your eyes. You're almost like, yeah, you can't expect him to be right. with the times on this. You're like, just stop making Biden talk about this stuff. He's, he's not with the, but the fact that he has to not only do that, but has to be with the load, latest woke insanity. Yeah. Like that this guy, like that any man in their 80s has got to be like, Oh yeah, Dylan Mulvaney. Totally, that's a that's a beautiful woman right there. That's what I'm looking at. Beautiful woman, and he's got to like actually do that is just hilarious. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. It's really interesting the mental gymnastics that people will put themselves through. <laughs> yeah, it's really something. <laughs> just to, the idea that they're not stopping him from running again. I mean, it's just you can't. I'm shocked. I didn't think, I thought they were going to replace him as the nominee at the last minute in uh, 2020. I was shocked he, he did that, and I was sure he'd be a, a one-term president, and I'm still now not even convinced he's going to be the nominee in 2024, but I, the more time goes on, you know, like I guess they're actually doing this. Well, the, f the fascinating thing is they will not allow, um, for the primaries, they're not going to allow debates. 
Oh, they don't want to let RFK on a stage with Biden. Yeah. Uh, RFK will rip that old man up. And then imagine if his voice was good. <sighs> it's really a shame. It is a shame. It's really he... the job really the job is really a speaking tour. Yeah. And it's a it's a real issue that he has he has issues speaking, but he did if have you get... surgery recently and it's better than it was before. Is that is it better? Yeah. But he's a he's an interesting guy on a lot of in a lot of ways. And I know people will say um you know, because he was a like a vaccine skeptic way before the COVID vaccine. He's yes. been a skeptic of vaccines in general. And a lot of people say that's like, oh, you know, this is a conspiracy theory or it's too far. But, you know, that argument after COVID is really much weaker much than it used to be. Weaker. Because people are actually like, yeah, I'm listening now. Yes. Now I'm actually kind of listening yeah. to that guy. It seems and, like there's a playbook. And, and you guys have been following this playbook forever. Yes. And I got his speech. Um, his announcement speech last week, what he spoke for over an hour, and I mean, it was really fantastic. I, I'm, I don't agree with everything the guy says, but the the major theme of his speech was that there is this unholy uh, alliance of big business and big government, and they're working together to screw over the American people, and like. Damned if anyone can argue that that's not true. No, that that's just that. so obviously the case, you know. And he went through this whole thing. He's really, uh, he was really great on the stuff on the war in Ukraine and being skeptical about like what the hell are we doing here. Um, really, really great on the COVID stuff. And he's a Kennedy, and he's not just like one of these like you know like peripheral Kennedys, like I married a third cousin type Kennedy. Like he's he's Bobby Kennedy's kid. Yeah, there's something powerful about that, even still. I and think. it's amazing that we've come so far. We're so far gone that they're not grasping that. Yeah. they're not latching onto that. Like you want a Democratic president, like he could be the guy. But the thing is, they don't want that. They want someone who adheres to the narrative. 100% completely doesn't get off track is is in cahoots with big business and big tech yeah. and everything else you... Well, it's it's just that like they're the the narrative is part of it But it's the narrative serves the system, you yeah. know So yeah. the problem is that he's kind of outside the system right. at least to some degree at least he seems like he is I don't you know I don't know but there's also something to you know Look, I don't know exactly. I, I, in fact, I haven't heard him address it. I'm sure he has, but I don't know exactly where he is on his uncle and his father's, you know, uh, assassinations. But I know that his dad was completely convinced that the that the JFK assassination was a conspiracy that they weren't telling us about. He did not buy it all into yeah. the like Lee Harvey Oswald lone, you know, wolf thing. Um, so it's got to also be you're a different type of outsider to the system if you believe the CIA killed your uncle. Yeah. That's a little bit different than just dad and maybe too. your dad. Yeah. That's yeah. a little bit different than just like, you know, while I disagree with my opponent, I respect his, you know, opinion or something like that. Yeah. That's a real like, no, you understand how evil and corrupt this system is. And that's what makes him an attractive candidate to me. I like people who recognize how evil and corrupt the system is because it really is both of those things. And He's got direct connection to it. I mean, yeah. it's, it was evil to his family. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's just, have you read The Real Anthony Fauci, his book? No, I, I haven't. I've, I've heard him talk about it in, in several shit. different interviews. Yeah, yeah. If he hasn't been sued yet, and he hasn't been sued yet for it, like, does that mean it's true? I mean, he's got so many references in that book. If you read that book, just when they talk about what they did during the AIDS pandemic, mm -hmm. holy shit, man. Fauci's a very bad guy. The, what they did, I mean, in the book, I mean, I don't want to 
paraphrase. I want to make sure I'm, I'm accurate about this, but they tested vaccines on foster kids, including babies. Like when you read what they did during the pandemic and it's f- spooky fucking shit. Also, like the application of AZT as a treatment, yeah. that AZT was a, a chemotherapy medication that was killing people quicker than cancer. It's scary stuff, man. When you when when he talks about Arthur Ashe and Arthur Ashe taking AZT and dying very quickly afterwards and that Arthur Ashe didn't even like have any symptoms before he got on medication. Yeah. Well, it's one I think one of the things that um people uh, a lot of people have woken up to this over the last few years with all of the COVID insanity. Um, and I think a lot of people have woken up to this over say the last 20 years of all the disastrous wars in the Middle East is that it's very it's very easy for them to just be like, oh, look, we have consensus amongst the expert class. You know, like we have consensus amongst the scientists that this is we need lockdowns and then we need these vaccine mandates and we need all of this. And all the sci- this is the science. The scientists agree. Right. But then once you actually like look into it a little bit, you realize that it's like, no, it's not that there's consensus amongst the scientists. It's that any scientist that doesn't agree with the consensus gets kicked out. Like they they all yes. get excommunicated and silenced, and then oh, it's just th- it's this completely corrupt group that is very involved with this money making machine, and you're like oh, there's such perverse incentives here, and so it's like and and the w- people realize this when after time it just gets demonstrated that what they were saying is wrong. Yeah, like no one's ar- no one can argue anymore that if you get the COVID vaccine, you can't get or transmit COVID. No right. one's arguing that anymore because it's just you can't keep up that lie anymore. And that was so quick. Yeah, it was so quick. I mean, that lie was being pushed on mainstream news just a couple of years ago. Well, dude, me and you were like talking about this stuff. It's so it's like it seems like not really that long ago, right? That we were having like some conversations where there'd be these clips of what we were saying, and it would be like, "Look at this COVID misinformation," yep. and it's kind of, and now you're like, "Uh huh." Let's let's look back at that. Yeah. The, the World Health Organization is now saying that you, the the vaccine shouldn't be given to kids. And you're, the thing you said that was so controversial that Fauci had to comment on it was you were like, ah, you know, for young people, I don't know if I'd really t- tell you to take this vaccine. Just be really healthy. Say like eat really well, exercise, get a lot of sunlight. That was your dangerous misinformation yeah. that you were spreading. Like Wild. let's let's put that up against. And at the same time, Fauci was saying, if you get the vaccine, you're not going to get COVID. You can't yeah. transmit it. You're like, so who's who is spreading misinformation? Not only there? that, they knew it was misinformation because mm-hmm. they had never tested it for transmission. Yes, they 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 knew it. The woman, uh, I, I'm blanking on her name, but the, she was on the task force, the original task force in 2020. She's the the lady who's always there at the podium with Trump mm-hmm. and Fauci. Burks. Yes, yes. She said, um, in like a kind of diplomatic way, but she was like, "Now, I," she goes, "I always knew that it wouldn't prevent transmission, and I felt that we overreached when we were making that claim." Mm. And you're like, "Overreached, lady." All of the policies that you put into place were built around that idea. The whole idea of vaccine mandates and uh, vaccine passports and all of this, this was all predicated on the idea that it wasn't just your choice. Like it wasn't just like, oh, you're choosing for your own health risk, that you were protecting other people. That was the whole idea that the whole thing was based on. If that's not true, then there was no justification for this. And millions of people lost their jobs over this. Yeah. Not to mention just the amount of people who were just like disenfranchised, like in major cities across the country. You couldn't go to a restaurant or couldn't go to a basketball game or whatever, which may seem less important than the ones who lost their job, but it's still fucked up. 
It's all fucked up because it was also incentivizing people to go along with something that they might not have wanted to do. Yeah. And then when you see the amount of people that got damaged because of that, both financially, physically, vaccine injuries, you know, ostracized from their communities, how many marriages broke up, how many friendships broke up. I know a lot of people that were skeptical about the COVID vaccine and they were shamed by their friends and they lost contact with those people. They stopped yep. being friends with them. I know a lot of people who um, whose mental health really deteriorated during the lockdowns as well. Oh, you yeah. know, and without a, a doubt. There's a lot of people that were already struggling mm-hmm. before the pandemic and that pushed them over the edge. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's really like it's something to look back on it now a few years later and just like how crazy it was. That we yeah. did this, like the lockdowns, that you were just like people were at home watching TV to find out from their governor holding a daily press conference telling you what you're allowed to do today. Yeah. That was reality. And if you think about it from like a mental health point of view, what could be worse than to just be like, okay, listen, I want you to stay home. I don't want you to see your friends. I don't want you to go out to a game. I want you to stay home and be terrified of a floating abstraction that can come get you at any point. And on top of that, you're probably also gonna be terrified about like your economic security, your financial future, like all of this stuff. It's like the worst thing you could do for people. So yeah, like you said, for people who were like on the edge already, you know, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's And then there was a lot of like old celebrities who were really terrified of it, who were just calling everybody a fucking moron for not taking it. You're, you fucking idiots. You're gonna ruin it all for everyone. Fuck your freedom. All that stuff. You remember that? <laughs> yep. That's all that shit is wild. It's so wild to see now. Yeah, and I do think like I'm not my personal view is that I think like um I think for the people at the very top, like I really do think there should be criminal charges. I think we should have Nuremberg type trials for what people did. I think it's I think it's one of the greatest crimes perpetrated on the American people by the Especially government. Especially if we funded the research that caused it in the first place. Which we did. I mean, they, they can argue, no, we were funding other gain-of-function research at that same lab, but come on, man. We were funding the lab where this virus almost certainly came from. So, the, But I, just saying, that at the top level, I think people should be prosecuted. They should go, Fauci should be prosecuted, clearly, at least for lying to Congress, if nothing else. Um, he out and out lied. Straight up lied. And now that's proven. Yes. Um, but then, like, for other people, like, you can't. I'm not saying everyone who supported the lockdown should, like, go to jail or something. We have to forgive people. Um, but I do think there should be some process where, like, some type of reconciliation. Um, but I don't, I don't think people should forget. Like, I don't think people, like, the thing you were just saying about Arnold Schwarzenegger and stuff yeah. like that and all that. Don't forget what, what these guys were willing to jump on board with. Yeah. Like, and how much further would they have gone? Right. You know what I mean? Like, what, like they pushed it pretty far, and these guys were completely on board. Like, is it really that unthinkable to say if they were like, "Hey, we're gonna round up the unvaccinated yeah. and put them into camps, take them away from their family"? You know, yeah. is that? Do I don't you, think so. I, I, some people would have gone along with it. Imagine if the pandemic was worse. Imagine if this mm. disease, instead of killing a, a fraction of one percent, imagine if it killed five percent. People yeah. would be on board with it. If it killed ten percent, people would be on board with it. It would. I mean, it's funny because what um, Sam Harris had that uh, that uh, thing. He had a clip where he was saying that basically like he, he was making the argument that like, hey, if this thing was worse, you all we wouldn't have tolerated any of this covid misinformation. But here's why that's wrong. 
because the vaccine still sucks. Yeah, no, it's yeah. I mean, if you change if you change all of the fundamentals and you make it yeah. a vaccine that's perfect and the thing is worse, then okay, fine. But I, when he said it, the first thing I'm thinking of it's like, oh yeah, no. Even in your scenario, you guys would have gone full Nazi. Like that's mm. what would have happened if mm. it was way worse. Because you guys wouldn't have just been like light totalitarians. Right. You would have gone to like some full dark totalitarian thing. Yeah. And so what now? Now you're gonna what? Uh, we no longer have freedom of speech, and you're gonna just what, what are you gonna do? Right. What are you gonna do to the person who says I don't want to get the vaccine now? And you when know? you eliminate that freedom of speech and you allow that government overreach and control, it never goes away. Yes. It never goes away. And, and the, the fact that people don't recognize that and they can't just make these logical thoughts about the future like if we do this what happens if someone gets in power and they're evil and they already have these new controls that we put in place like that was during the NDAA remember mm -hmm. when Obama was like we would never you know detain people for no reason like yeah you wouldn't as he signed it into law yeah but it, just saying that you don't you would never use it then don't have it yeah, you should need a fucking warrant. There should be like a reason why someone gets detained. There shouldn't be an indefinite detention. Yeah, indefinite. For, if, if people don't know the reference in the in the yeah. NDAA Act, uh, forget which year it was, um, two thousand eleven, I think. Um, there was this provision that said that under the auspice of the War on Terror, that uh, the government can detain an American citizen and hold them indefinitely with no charges if they decide that you are in some way connected to some yeah. type of group. And Obama signed it into law, but he put a signing statement on the bill and said, I do not plan on invoking this, this privilege and I, we do not plan on detaining anyone. But you're like, but that's not enough to veto the bill? Like, yeah. that's like oh, yes, this bill does technically repeal the Bill of Rights, but I'm still going to sign it. But you don't worry about that. It Just should be illegal. It should be illegal to go against the, the the ideas that founded this country. Well, the thing is, what's weird is that it is illegal. I mean, like, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. This is yeah. what they all hold their hands up to and take an oath to swear to protect and defend. Um, but the thing is that it doesn't really matter. Like, the thing about laws is that they're just words written on a piece of paper. So it doesn't really matter what's technically legal or illegal. What matters is what people can get away with doing. Like Obama murdered American citizens with no charges, two of them at least. Um, that is illegal. That is, that is very clearly illegal. And this was you're talking about drone strikes. Yes, and it was suspected. Well, terrorists. there was it was Anwar Awlaki and his his son. Now with the son who was like 14 or 15, they came back and killed him a few weeks after they killed the father. Now I believe they claim he was not the target of the drone strike, like that he was just collateral damage, still I would argue should be illegal. Um, but I, also most people don't buy that because it's just like seems very obvious that they were trying to take him out. But the Anwar Alaki guy certainly had been radicalized and I think had sworn allegiance, uh, allegiance to Al-Qaeda, um, but he's still an American citizen. And the rules are, if you're an American citizen, are you have to be charged with a crime and then you get a lawyer in a suit and a judge in a robe and 12 people who are like pooled randomly and mm. they decide if you're guilty of a crime. And by the way, they can, he was in Yemen at the time, but they can charge you and have a trial. And if you don't show up to it, they still, you know what I mean? Like convict you of it. Right. But there's a whole process. You don't just have the president drop a sky robot on you because he says you're guilty of these crimes. Mm. Um, and 
you know, it's funny when people, the, they'll still talk about Obama, be scandal-free administration, you know? What was his biggest scandal? He wore a tan suit or something, and you're like, how about them murdering American citizens without charges? That was a pretty big scandal, in my and, opinion. And what about the people that got killed by drones that were totally innocent, which is in the somewhere in the range of 90%? It was over 90%. There, there was one... Uh, um, report that came out about that that I think said somewhere in the neighborhood of like 95% of the people killed in drones were not that were collateral damage were not the targets of the drones these you know they they like to people like to think of these things as they call them precision strikes yeah, but like surgical. they're not surgical strikes they're they're bombs that blow shit up you know yeah. what I mean and yeah a lot of innocent people die and then out of those it, it's even higher than that because what they're counting as as the target of the strikes just means you were put on a list, which is not always does not always mean that you were actually a terrorist. Because what happens is a lot of times they're working with these groups on the ground. They kind of bribe them to rat out who's a terrorist. But a lot of times those groups are just giving you like their enemy. Right. You know what I mean? Like someone they want to get killed, or they're just coming up with names because they want you to keep bribing them. The whole thing was such a clusterfuck, man. Um, and some of it is still uh, going on to this day, although now we've decided to flirt with an even much more dangerous uh, nuclear war. Um, but yeah, and, and it, even the drone bombings weren't the worst of what Obama did. You know, the worst of what he did was overthrowing Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, um, funding the anti-Assad rebels and starting a civil war in Syria, funding the Saudis and giving them the green light and refueling their fighter jets so they could genocide the people of Yemen for eight freaking years. That was the worst of it, um, and just goddamn, goddamn tragedy. Yeah, but he talks so well. He gave a hell of a speech. Great president. He really gave a hell of Great a speech. Statesman. He's I, it's it's people forget how good he was. The job aged him a lot too. Oh, so yeah. he wasn't as good at the end as he was at the beginning. But if you go listen to his, um, it's nonsense. It's mostly just like gooey nothingness. But if you listen to his speech. At the um, the 2008 uh, Democratic National Convention, his official acceptance speech, it's just like it's a masterclass on ha on public speaking. He would just say these things, even when they were like meaningless. But he would like I remember. I'm trying to think if I can remember. He has this thing. Where he's like uh, he's like. He's like, I love this country, and so do you, and so does John McCain. The men and women who have fought and died in our armed forces have been Democrats and Republicans and independents, but they did not die defending a red America or a blue America. They died defending the United States of America. It's, it's like, but the way he would deliver it, it's so like, it really just tugs yeah. at your like insides and makes you like, God damn. And then after a little while, you walk away and you're like, wait, but what did he say? Right. You're like, oh, that was nothing. I mean, it was nothing. It wasn't like, you know. Well, that's a He did say some thing. good things when he ran, though. He yeah. did. I mean, he, he ran on some really good policies like ending the, uh, the, the wars and uh, closing Guantanamo Bay and repealing the Patriot Act and restoring the rule of law and, you know, ending torture and all. Yeah. The shame is he did none of it. Um, and I think that's uh, like I, I go back and forth. You could pick like any president really of my lifetime. You'd be like, who ruined the 21st century for America? Um, you could certainly make an argument for George W. Bush um, and Dick Cheney, but there's something about Obama. I think I I put probably more blame than anyone else on him because he was he was supposed to be the response, and like that's the way this system of government is supposed to work, or so they say, is like well we have these democratic processes, processes you know, so you can. Um, 
you know, if they're if you're upset with these guys, you can kick the bums out and vote for these guys. And obviously, we all know it's like the then they narrow it down to two teams, and those two teams happen to have the same policy when it comes to you know the military industrial complex or the banking industrial complex or the pharmaceutical industrial complex. They're all on the same side. So that's how the uniparty works. Like no matter who you vote in, they're yeah. all supposed to be. But the country was so furious with George W. Bush and Dick Cheney, who handed him two disastrous failed wars and the worst financial crisis in 100 years. And they were so furious with them that they voted the most opposite thing they could. You know, the, the, this junior senator, constitutional lawyer, brilliant, articulate, you know, everything that was the opposite of George W. Bush. And he was supposed to be the answer. And then he got in and just continued the Bush like the Bush administration. It might as well have been the third and fourth term of George W. Bush. And that is where the country spins out to me. That's where you end up with Trump. I bet if you were friends with Obama, if you could, if you really were friends with him, if you could have a couple of drinks, maybe spark up a joint and talk to that guy, if he really trusted you and knew you were never going to mm-hmm. tell anybody, I bet he could tell you some shit. Yeah, I bet you're right. I, I, I'm on I'm more of like a believer in what Putin has said about this when he talks about how he's been through three different presidents and they all have these plans yeah. and he goes and they get into office and people that are dressed in a suit like mine come in and sit them down and tell them how everything works. If you think about how much access to the real understanding of how the government works is ever going to be given to a junior senator who's running for president, I bet very little. I bet very little. I bet there's no speeches. I bet there's no conversation about it. I think once you get in, once you're in the Pentagon, once you're in the Oval Office, once you're meeting with these people and you realize, like, holy shit, and then you realize this machine behind you that's pushing all the buttons and, and you're a spokesperson for this machine. Uh, yeah, I, not, think, I think this might be why they hated Trump so much because much. I think that speech just didn't work on him. Yeah, he's like, like yeah. <laughs> there's this story, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it sounds so true. I think it was in Bob Woodward's book. I, I can't remember where it was, but I, this may not be true, but it just sounds so true that I guess after Trump won the election and he goes to uh, Camp David, um, I think this is still while he was um, uh, president-elect, it might have been right after he got in. I'm not sure. But I guess he goes and he's like at this like CIA like thing. And they said that he came in and there's like a wall for like um, like agents who died in the line of duty. And they said Trump just walks in and stands right in front of it, which is like crazy disrespectful to do. And he said he just starts talking to the room about how tremendous his victory was. Like he just gets there and he's like, everyone said we were going to lose, but we won big and we won both. And it just sounds like, I don't know if that really happened, but it so sounds like that really happened. And you can just imagine all these CIA agents just like, we got to get rid of this guy. Um, But like what you said about the stuff, like the speech they get, who knows? It's a real interesting thing to to think yeah. about. I, and I would love great, to talk to Trump about this. It's a great speech. Bill Hicks, uh, a yeah, great yeah, Bill yeah. Hicks bit. The bit about showing the Kennedy assassination I, from an yep. angle you've never seen before. Such a great bit. <laughs> but uh, there's, I will say that there definitely are what we like. What we know is there definitely are forces that kind of roll over presidents, and even with Obama, like you know, if you remember the the story with um the um, General McChrystal. Mm-hmm. And how he went to the media and told them. This is the guy who uh, Michael Hastings ended up getting fired because mm-hmm. he was, you know, talking shit about maybe, Obama to him at a bar. Maybe whacked. Well, you know, he just 
It was driving too fast that night, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know the story one. there. Let's talk about that one in a minute. Sure, sure. I, I'm not sure if that is it, like what happened with that because I have heard that like his brother said he started drinking again or something like that. So I don't know the details of that story exactly. Oh, I would drink too if assassins. Were yes, after me. if I was if I was working on uncovering yeah. CIA corruption, I'd probably not be just drinking. working on undercovering CIA corruption, but you were embedded with these soldiers and they got comfortable with you. Yeah, and then you printed all the things that they said. Which, but what's what's very interesting about that is that it it it, it was a really good, it was a really important story because it makes you recognize that like, wow, even these like very high ranking generals are talking shit about the president. Like yeah. this, ah, oh, this fucking asshole doesn't know what right. he's doing. And that. Right. But so McChrystal, before that interview, he went to the media because Obama, I guess, gave him the surge he wanted, but he put a, an end date on it. And he was like, but our troops will be out by this date. And that pissed him off. And so he went to the media and told them that, you know, uh, he said, I haven't had any contact with the president and we haven't been talking since this and that. And then the media was like, put all this pressure on Obama. Like, you're not even talking to your guy over there in Afghanistan and basically kind of tied his hands politically mm. so that he kind of just had to continue the war. And there's a lot of stuff like that that happens. And with Trump, I mean, it was it was reported that they lied to him about the number of troops in uh, in in Syria. And when he said he wanted to pull the troops out, they lied to him and said there were far less than there actually were. Wow. Like they're, and they're just bragging about this. Uh, it's, it's really, you, you, you realize that this thing is all fake. It's not run the way people think it's run. Yeah, and that is, if anything, I mean, even if you're a Trump hater, you have to recognize that he exposed that. He showed us that in a way that we'd never seen before because they were so furious at him. They were willing to like show their powers. They were, they were almost like witches that start casting spells. You're like, oh. Well, what's weird is that so many of the, the Trump haters, which like, be a Trump hater. I don't It's fine. There's, so a, lot to, there's a lot to criticize there. But like so many of the Trump haters will talk about like, um, you know, undermining our democracy. And he, he incited an insurrection against like this Democratic Republic or whatever. But then you'll see things like, look, this just came out um, uh, within the last week and a half or so that we now know that it was it was uh, Blinkett, the current secretary of state before he came in, who requested that the CIA put together this letter that said there were 50 intelligence experts who had determined that the Hunter Biden laptop had all the earmarks of Russian disinformation, you know, just to help Joe Biden win. Now, forget even the fact that um, the intelligence agencies are interfering in an election. They're, they're doing it to undermine who was the current president of the United States of America. Also, the guy they work for. They're also openly lying. Yes, yes. I mean, that's a, all of these are big problems. But the fact that that's not freaking people out, that they openly lied about that. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, all of this stuff is very troubling. And then, of course, you know. Um, I mean, that's dictatorship. Well, they just. They're just that's uh, not supposed to be how America works. And if you're a guy that's involved in doing that, like, Jesus Christ, how much power do you need? Like, you, you, you can't do that. It's so deeply un-American. To, to lie to the American people about something that might affect an election is crazy. That's cra And to justify it because you want your guy to get in there. Like, man, that that's a crazy abuse of power. And the problem with that is I think the FBI is very important. I think the CIA is very important. I think all these people that are 
understanding what's going on in the world and and with with no filter they have all the access to information if you don't have that in this world this climate that we live in i think you're fucked but you can't do that because that's going to undermine everybody else's understanding of what you're you're willing to do so all the good work that they do people are going to mistrust it there's a lot of people that have lost their faith in the intelligence community because of things like this well and because of the stuff that they do i mean it's like it's, it's not but it's kind of like but i think a lot of those people are fucking patriots which is so fucked yeah i'm sure there are there are some um but they but, just they're stuck in a system yes but that's the problem is that it's like you know it's like when people say they're losing uh, that people are losing trust in these institutions. It's like, well, yes, but it's because they've fi found out what the institutions are doing. Also, it's like if your if your wife found out that you're cheating all over her, and you're like, well, this is a problem because she's losing trust in me. It's like, well, yeah, but she's not. She shouldn't trust you because yeah. she found out what you're doing. You know what I mean? Like it's so. But isn't it who's going to watch the Watchmen? Yeah, isn't, isn't that it? Because when you have any kind of a position like that where you have just insane power over information and policy and what gets done and no one no one is managing it like from outside of it that's saying hey what are you doing no that's in the constitution you can't do that don't do that there's no like oversight where there's someone who is completely objective is loyal only to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and lays out like the rules these are the fucking rules for America like you can't operate outside of these rules just because you want your guy to win that's un-American that's as un-American as anything else that you could be prosecuted for that we get think about what Assange did what they're trying to get after is what's more un-American Lying to the American people or exposing the American people to information that has been hidden from them That's deeply disturbing that would change their opinion on things and that's criminal You know, I yes. mean like expose actual war crimes like what is what is America? That's the thing like what are we are we the shining light of the world? Are we the this incredible garden of creativity and innovation because we're that too? Yeah we're aware of a wild fucking amazing experiment in self-government, but we got to stick to the fucking rules And if you get people in power and no one is able to stop them from not sticking to the rules And then when they do violate the law, there's no consequences We forgot what it is to be American. It's well, not like, good like, for them. It's not good for us It's not good for any of us. We're all in this together. You can't do that yeah, well, like you said, we are kind of all of those things. Yeah, you know, we're like we're we are this like you know it's like in in the wise words of the great Eminem, I'm all, <laughs> I'm all for America. Fuck the government, you know. Like but we're a not great even fuck the government. Fuck the bad parts of the government. There's there's yeah. people in the government that are trying to do the right thing. I know there are. There's people in the government that are patriots. There's people in the government that really want this place to get better. You don't think Bernie Sanders wants the government to get better? 
I think he definitely wants the world to get Maybe. better. Maybe. I, I think that guy realistically wants the world to be a better place. I think Tulsi Gabbard realistically yes. wanted the world to be a better place. She was in government. She was yeah. a congresswoman for 10 years. But look what the system did to a good congresswoman. Yeah, but you know what? She recognized that she wasn't willing to be compromised, and she removed herself from what she thought was a corrupt organization. Right, but then, like, so what does that, that say about Bernie Sanders? But, right, but I'm just saying that's kind of the way the system works. So it, it chews up and spits out the people who have some integrity. Not all of them. There are some, some who, who, you know, like, like stay in. Um, but there is some, I mean, Tulsi Gabbard got called a Russian asset by, by Hillary Clinton, by it's the establishment wild. of her own party. Why? You know, a woman who served, was embedded in a medical unit in yeah, Iraq. Served like, twice. Right, yeah. Really saw the cost yes, of war. Really um, saw it. The Developed war, that white streak in her hair yeah, from that. Yeah. The war that Hillary Clinton lied us into. And voted for, um, and then she turns around and calls her like a she Russian says she asset. betrayed her the it's country. Wild that they think they can say that because they used to be able to say that with no recourse. They're operating in a world where there was no internet. They yeah. still have that programming from the world of no internet. Yeah, and also operating in a world. You know, it's kind of like what you were talking about with like the CIA getting so much power that it just becomes so corrupted. And I think a lot, a lot of the story of America and how we've just become so degraded. Um, is is really kind of goes back to the collapse of the Soviet Union and the fact that what uh, Charles Krautenhammer called the uni the unipolar moment that yeah. in the 90s it was like oh for the first time ever that's it America is the lone superpower and this really is like what all of those guys said like all the neoconservatives like the project for a new American century and those guys they were like this is our moment we can do whatever we want we have like we are the sole power in the world, and what they wanted to do was a lot of really awful things. Um, but the, it almost created so much power and so much hubris that they just think they can get away with everything. Like there's no limit on what they can do, and it turns out that actually you're not gods; you're just people. And all of these, this carefully perfect, like, okay, well, this is what we'll do, and then this is what's going to happen. You know, we'll overthrow Saddam Hussein, and then democracy will sweep the region. And it's like, no. It's actually not going to work out that way. And to me, to me, that's the whole story of the, the war in Ukraine right now, too. It was all like, we're, we're going to, we've got this perfect plan that we'll just keep expanding NATO and we'll just keep interfering. We'll have these color-coded revolutions. We'll take over more and more and we'll, we will be the dominant force. And it's like, yeah, well, there's consequences to that. That doesn't, doesn't just work as perfectly as you planned it out. Just exactly. like with all the wars in the Middle East. And what's happening now is very spooky. Mm -hmm. It's really spooky because so many people are dying and they're trying to put a positive spin on it It's like what is the end game here? How does this end? Well, you know How is there not negotiations and when Trump says that he, it would have never happened when he was in office and he would be able to stop it now Like people listen to that and like that's dangerous too. It's dangerous to, 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 to have this one solution like if he, he's, he's gonna fix it He's gonna fix it. Hey, what if he can't what if yeah. he can't what if this is a thing that's just like Eisenhower warned everyone about. What if this is a thing? What if this is a fucking whole business? Just like we're in the business of telling jokes, you know? People who make pies are in the business of <laughs> pie making, and people who make war are in the business of war making. And once that machine gets moving, I mean, it's like a tank with no brakes. It's certainly very hard to stop it. And it we seems haven't like figured it's hard out, to stop it. We haven't figured out how to yet. And 
You know, Donald Trump can say that, and I would say I think his rhetoric has been much better on this than Joe Biden's, and at least he's talking about negotiating. Do you negotiating. think he could stop it? You think, you think there's a way to somehow or another? Does the president have that kind of power where the president could go in and say, I want to meet with Putin, I want to organize a negotiation, I want to end this right now? He could say it. And then, you know, and then see what I, I don't know. You know, I, he would I don't have to get NATO to pull their arms back. Well, the I mean, the president c- could certainly you has a lot of leverage there. You know what I mean? Like, how much a, power do you think they really genuinely have? It's an interesting question. I don't know exactly. I think that's what Putin's I, point was about getting into office. Yeah, I think I think that's that's what he was saying, and it does seem like there's a lot of truth to that. I also one of the things that makes me um, skeptical about how great Trump would be on this is that Trump wasn't very good on this issue while he was in. I mean, Trump was the one who sent the weapons into Ukraine. As this is you know when he got impeached, it was famously over um, the Ukraine Gate thing. Was he said um, he was? Uh, they said it was a, a quid pro quo where he was mm-hmm. holding up the weapons putting pressure on Zelensky to investigate the Bidens. But the part of that story that doesn't get talked about that much is that then he caved and he gave them the weapons. And this was a major, this was a major uh, reason, I think, why this war ended up happening. And what they said at the time was that they were sending in the weapons to, um, to deter the Russians. And mm. so either, either they're really bad at deterrence or it actually was a provocation because um, it certainly didn't deter Vladimir Putin from going in. Um, and I think that, and Trump also got us out of the INF treaty. Um, he also, like, it was just, he was not good on this. He was, in fact, I think he was trying to prove how much he wasn't a Russian agent. Oh, you know what I mean? That he was kind of like being more hawkish toward Russia. Interesting. Um, to show you what a Russian agent I'm not. Oh, no. Um, so <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what he would do. It certainly couldn't be any worse than what the plan is right now. And, you know, to your point, that you made because I know last time I was on the show I talked a lot about this uh, um, the the like kind of the cause of this war in Ukraine and I put a lot of blame on American foreign policy and I uh, it went super viral and I heard back from some people who disagreed um, but the the funny thing about it is is that it's not like when I was talking about like NATO expansion and how much of a provocation this was to the Russians when you were talking about like the good people in government mm-hmm. it's 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 not like it's just kooks or you know crazy libertarians like me it was not just like ron paul and and noam chomsky and pat buchanan like the outsiders who were all against nato expansion but the list of people within the government within the national security apparatus who completely opposed nato expansion is really impressive and long there's a lot of like really wise people within the government who were completely against NATO expansion in the 90s when it first started. Um, at least three secretaries of defense, uh, Robert McNamara, um, uh, Robert Gates, uh, George W. Bush and Barack Obama's secretary of defense, William Perry, who was Bill Clinton's secretary of defense and, and the secretary of defense at the time. They all opposed it in like the strongest possible language and all explicitly for the reason that this will provoke a conflict with Russia. And they were like uh, George Kennan, who was the founder of the containment strategy the old school cold warrior. There's this great interview he gave with uh, Thomas Friedman from the New York Times. You can find it online. And it's in the 90s when they're doing the first round of NATO expansion. And he is like furious. Like his anger comes through the page when you're reading it. Because he's like, what are you guys doing? We won the Cold War. We won. 
And now you're picking a fight with Russia. And this isn't Vladimir Putin's Russia. This was Boris Yeltsin, you know? And he's like, these aren't the Soviets. These aren't the communists. These are the heroes who overthrew them. Why are we picking a fight with them? And he was a cold warrior. He was like, you're throwing away my life's work. And he said, and and this was a really, you know, a, a crazy prediction, really ominous. He said, the people who are advocating expanding NATO are going to continue advocating expanding it and expanding it and expanding it. And then there will be a Russian reaction. And then when there's the Russian reaction, they're going to say, see, that's proof that we have to keep expanding it. And damn, if he wasn't right, if he wasn't right about that. And oh, but one more uh, little detail on this, because this is really interesting, is so there is in 2008, in February of 2008, there was a private cable that the current uh, CIA head, uh, Burns, uh, Bill Burns, who's currently the head of the CIA, at the time he was the ambassador to Russia. And so he sent a private uh, message to Condoleezza Rice, who was the Secretary of State at the time. And this, the only reason we know about this is because of the heroic uh, Julian Assange dumped this. So this was not for the public. This is like what they were saying to each other. And this memo was titled, Nyet means Nyet. And it was about Ukrainian entry into NATO because this had been floated out for a while. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Basically, the whole piece is this, the current CIA director telling telling Condoleezza Rice that this, and he's saying it in diplomatic language. Read it for us. Yeah, so he says, Ukraine and Georgia's NATO aspirations not only touch a raw nerve in Russia, they, uh, they engender serious concerns about the consequences for stability in the region. Not only does Russia perceive encirclement and efforts to undermine Russia's influence in the region, but it also fears unpredictable and uncontrolled consequences, which would seriously affect Russian security interests. Experts tell us that Russia is particularly worried that the strong divisions in Ukraine over NATO membership, with much of the ethnic Russian community against membership, could lead to a major split involving violence or at worst civil war. In that eventuality, Russia would have to decide whether to intervene, a decision Russia does not want to have to face. So this is, now there's another memo that comes out later that year where he says, and it's really, it's a really interesting thing where he goes, he said, Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of all red lines. And Burns says to Condoleezza Rice, again, not to the American public, just to let the Secretary of State know, like, this is what I'm saying. He goes, I've spoken to everyone over here. He goes, from the craziest right-wingers to Putin's sharpest liberal critics, and it is unanimous to a man. They all agree that Ukrainian entry into NATO is the brightest of red lines, that this is a direct threat to Russia. You cannot do this. In the same way Jack Kennedy was saying you cannot put missiles in Cuba, you cannot bring Ukraine into your military alliance. That was Putin's position. Then this is what they were telling him. And three months after that memo that we were just reading, so this was in February, they had the Bucharest summit where NATO announced that Georgia and Ukraine were coming into NATO. And this is what's, it's like our ambassador to Russia told our secretary of state, do not do this. And then they went, we're just announcing that we're going to do it. And three months after that was the war in in Georgia because they announced Georgia and Ukraine were coming in. And then Georgia got ballsy because they felt like they had the backing of the West and they attacked a breakaway province uh, south of Sessia. And they had Russian peacekeepers there and Vladimir Putin responded. That was like the first like real response. And he went to war with Georgia over that. And then... Uh, you know, like the stuff we talked about last time is when in 2014, um, when there was the coup backed by the West, 
in Ukraine. You know, it's what I like about these segments too is like people can argue with like this because I know there are people arguing with me. The last time I was here, if you remember, we played the video of Gideon Rose mm-hmm. uh, just bragging about this, and he was like, "Dude, I'm, it's not me." These are that's the CIA director's words. Yeah. That's Gideon. That's the editor of Foreign Affairs magazine saying this. Like this is what people in the government were saying. And uh, like one more note that I'll say is that Bill Clinton's Secretary of Defense he wrote about this in 2015. So this is after the the coup in Ukraine, the Maidan Revolution, and after uh, Putin took Crimea. And he basically said that like this is all my fault. And that his biggest regret was that he didn't resign over NATO expansion. He said, I think he said his biggest regret was that he didn't like do everything he could to stop it and that he didn't ultimately resign over it because this was destined to be like the future. That it was like, you mm. know, people will say, I know people will argue with me on this and they'll say like, but like, you know, NATO is just a defensive alliance. So why should Vladimir Putin care if you know, we expand this defensive alliance? And it's like, yeah, it's a defensive alliance, except for all the times it's not. You know, except for all the times it fights aggressive wars like in Serbia or Libya or Afghanistan. Other than that, I guess, they claim it's a defensive alliance. But from Vladimir Putin's perspective, this isn't a defensive voluntary alliance. This is the European wing of the American empire, the most war-hungry country in the world, who's started seven wars in the last 20 years and slaughtered millions of people. Like, from his perspective, when you put dual-use rocket launchers in Poland— that's not like we're just trying. The, the official uh, uh, reason is we're just trying to make sure that Iran can't nuke Europe with the nukes that they don't have. <laughs> but from Putin's perspective, he's like, no, you're trying to cut down on the time it would take for a nuclear weapon to hit Moscow. And so, like, again, it's not that Putin's a good guy because he's not. And it's not that he's justified in invading uh, Ukraine. He's not. And all the stories of like horrible shit that he, you've heard that he's done there, he's probably done a lot of them. But, man, it's just that all these guys, these same dumb neocons who had this policy to remake the Middle East, they're the same ones who also had the policy to expand NATO all the way to Russia's border. And, man, was just the, this just the dumbest, most reckless policy ever that's now put us in a position where we are closer to a risk of World War III and nuclear war than we've ever been in my life. And for what? For what? To make sure that... The Donbass region is ruled by Kiev rather than Moscow. Like, is that really worth it? Jesus Christ. And you know what I didn't consider until this all broke out? When I started looking at the borders of Russia, you know, when, when people are explaining why this is so important and why control of Crimea and why control of all these places is so important, once you look at the, the what used to be the Soviet Union, you realize, like, oh, the there's all these countries that are connected to them. People can just invade anywhere. Mm-hmm. The United States has a very unique position in the world. The North America's position in the world, just where we are, separated by oceans. Right. Up until these hypersonic weapons, that was a barrier. It was a, a huge barrier. Like, to and it's come... still a barrier to conventional, yes. you know, like warfare. Right. But we, I don't think we really have to worry about that. I, I agree. Now. Yes. We have to worry about wild shit. That yes. We, you know, this is what freaks me out about this whole UFO thing. I wonder how many of those fucking things that we're seeing is a government who's reached some form of technology that we don't, we're not aware of yet. Yeah. And how many of them are ours and how many of them are China's? How many of them are Russia's? Do those exist? I don't know. I mean, if they exist, I would, I would think China more than anyone. 
you know, because their technological capabilities are fucking so high yeah, level. But I think Russia's put a lot into that stuff also. I'm so sure. I don't know. You Who know, I don't know. Knows? That's I mean, Putin claims like he's developed like all of these crazy, you know what I mean, things over the last few years that that's really what that basically he said that once once uh, NATO kept expanding so much that they left him no choice but to develop faster and crazier <laughs> missiles and different technologies. And it's just like, um, you know, it's it's weird because I've heard a lot of people I've heard people on this show and on lots of other shows say that the big concern they have is Vladimir Putin winning the war, taking all of Ukraine or just keeping the parts that he wants or something like that. And that then he might be like, oh, hey, I can get away with it. Uh, I'll take Poland or whatever. Now, that to me seems very far fetched. Like he's having enough trouble just taking Ukraine. I really doubt he's moving on Poland next. But it's like, okay, I, I understand kind of in theory where where that concern is. But what about the concern if he loses? Like, what if he's humiliated on his own border and Russia's com- Russia is completely destroyed and humiliated? What if, like, wh- like he's attacked within Russia? What, the- what if he's convinced that he's done and he's going to be overthrown or he's going to die? To me, that's actually the most dangerous scenario because really nobody's probably going to launch the first nuclear strike, unless they're already convinced they're dead anyway. You know what I mean? And yeah. then it's like, all right, you're going to take me out. I'm bringing you with me type right. deal. Right. And to me, that's the biggest concern. What you want to find here is like an off ramp where everyone can save face a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like everyone can go home and tell their own people like yeah. we did the job, you know, like yeah. like a justification somehow. And it really... It's, it's got to involve, like, negotiating some type of compromise. And, you know, what if he does get overthrown and Russia becomes a failed state? That's a pretty dangerous scenario, too. Imagine Russia becomes like Libya. Because yeah. when they overthrew Muammar Gaddafi, Libya fell apart. Yep. Libya's ha- they have open-air slave markets where you can auction slaves off. You could watch them on YouTube. The, Libya is terrifying. Well, it's, that's why it's it's so crazy that because you'll hear people like um you know like Lindsey Graham and and like idiots like that will talk about like if Putin's overthrown like almost like it's a given that things are better then. And you're like how even if it didn't go to like a failed state like Libya like how do you know it's not just like a far worse right wing dictator who comes up and takes yeah. over you know what I mean like why is it's not if there's one thing we've learned from the 20th and 21st centuries it's like sometimes you can overthrow a government and it can be much worse than the one that you overthrow. You know, yeah. we th- oh, governments were overthrown I- after World War One in Russia and Germany. Yeah. And then then came in Lenin, yeah. Stalin and Hitler. Yeah. Right. Like it can get a lot worse, even if it's not a Gaddafi, you know, failed state type deal, um, which is also much worse. Um, but you could you could be looking at something, you know, that's far worse than what we have right now. But isn't it amazing that that's taken place so many times and yet we still have this idea that overthrowing them or getting rid of our enemy is that's the solution to the problem. Yeah, it's uh well it's unbelievable. Even the fucking Game of Thrones kings handle it better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they really <laughs> <laughs> I mean they fucking got together and worked shit out. Here's when Obama Obama <laughs> said that the greatest regret of his uh presidency was not thinking about what would happen the day after they overthrew Gaddafi and you're like but you didn't like we just did it in Iraq. You didn't. Yeah, that you wasn't didn't, your thought. You didn't like think, you didn't. You didn't think maybe, maybe this, it'll go crazy. Yeah, this this like, could. Do be we bad? even have journalists in Libya now? 
I don't think so. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I mean, they've, they've done a few pieces on like the open-air slave markets. I haven't seen anything in a few years, but who's though, running right? Libya? So I, I don't think anyone's running Libya. Libya is like basically warring tribes. Jesus Christ. Yeah. And the only way someone's going to take control is the biggest warlord. That's usually how it goes. And what are their resources? Are they, are, is it drugs? Sudan militants spark huge risk in lab with samples of deadly viruses. Oh, terrific. Wonderful. Terrific. Wonderful. We just happen to have deadly viruses laying around where there's a, mm. a revolution. You know, it's, it's interesting if you go back and read these guys. Uh, like I was, I was talking about the uh, Project for a New American Century. Have you you've heard of those that, that before? It was I've like heard it from tank. you. Yeah, yeah. It, was a, it was a think tank in the 90s. Um, it fueled a lot of, if you, uh, if, if the, the, 9-11 conspiracy guys like even some of the kooky guys it fueled a lot of them because it was basically this uh, It was a think tank uh, its founding uh, Signatories were like the Bush administration. It was all the neocons in the 90s who were out. So it was a uh, um, uh, Robert Kagan and you know, like uh, Bill Kristol and and uh, Dick Cheney and um, You know like all the Wol Paul Wolfowitz all the kind of like neocons who ended up taking power in George W. Bush's uh, administration and they laid out their plans for what they wanted to do and one of their plans involved overthrowing Saddam Hussein in Iraq and and fighting multiple wars and uh, and NATO expansion in Europe and so the 9-11 conspiracy theorists would jump on this and go aha you know this is why they brought the towers down just so they could get the war in Iraq that they always wanted whereas I think the simpler explanation was just like they took advantage of the opportunity when it came mm -hmm. and realized they could get what they wanted but regardless there's no debate they're on record they wanted it back in the 90s and one of the so basically what it's about it's what the title is it's a project for a new American century and they're like hey we're in the 90s here the Soviet Union has fallen the 20th century was the century of America and now what's our plan for the next century what's the what's the plan for the new American century and they actually say in one of the most famous policy papers it's really something to say is they go look um, we have no real threat to our vital interests right now there are no real threats to America uh, our dominance right now. And so what we need to do is fight wars in multiple theaters. So we need to go and now show our dominance to the rest of the world. And so they're, they're actually saying, if you read between the lines, not that much. They're like, we don't need to fight a war, but let's go fight them. Let's go fight them anyway. And this is what happens. They won. Like all the wise people in government who were opposed to them lost. And all the dumb George W. Bushes and Joe Bidens won. And they got their way. And we're living through the results of it. And you're like, oh, great. Do Isn't this wonderful? Do you remember when that general, was it West? Wesley Clark. Wesley Clark, that's right. Wesley Clark um, told this reporter in, in this interview that, like, find that interview because it's so fascinating. He said uh, five countries in seven years or and seven countries like, in five years. And what are we years. doing? Yeah. And, you know, I mean... He's this decorated general who's being presented mm -hmm. with this plan. And uh, let's play this because this has not been discussed enough. This can never be discussed enough. It can never <laughs> be discussed enough. And it's also, it's all out there and you're not hearing it. You know, and this is the, the fact that the journalists aren't like putting this in everyone's face. Well, this good. very information that you're giving out today. Well, the good ones are, to yeah. be fair. I mean, like the Glenn Greenwalds and the Aaron Mateys and the people, Matt Taibis, they're doing a great job on this stuff. Coincidentally, but, all independent. Yes, and coincidentally, all uh, vilified by yes. the establishment. And weren't independent initially. 
these these guys have all had to stick to their principles and, and leave to listen to this because this is very fucking wild. About 10 days after 9-11, I went through the Pentagon and I saw Secretary Rumsfeld and, and Deputy Secretary Wolfowitz. I went downstairs just to say hello to some of the people on the joint staff who had used, used to work for me. And one of the generals called me and he said, sir, you got to... Come in. You got to come in and talk to me a second. I said, "Well, you're too busy." He said, "No, no." He says, "We've made the decision. We're going to war with Iraq." This was on or about the 20th of September. I said, "We're going to war with Iraq. Why?" He said, "I don't know." <laughs> he said, "I guess they don't know what else to do." So uh, I said, "Well, did they find some information collect connecting Saddam to Al Qaeda?" He said. No, no. He says there's nothing new that way. They just made the decision to go to war with Iraq. He said, I guess it's like we don't know what to do about terrorists, but we've got a good military and we can take down governments. And um, he said, I guess if, if the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem has to look like a nail. So I came back to see him a few weeks later. And by that time, we were bombing in Afghanistan. I said, are we still going to war with Iraq? And he said, oh, it's worse than that. He said, he reached over on his desk, he picked up a piece of paper, and he said, I just, he said, I just got this down from upstairs, meaning the Secretary of Defense office today, and he said, this is a memo that describes how we're going to take out seven countries in five years, starting with Iraq and then Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and finishing off Iran. Sudan. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, they've, they haven't, it's not like that plan was followed perfectly to a T, but a lot of it sure was. And it's pretty crazy to see him. By the way, I don't think he needed to grab Amy Goodman's piece of paper there, which was a weird thing. Like he goes, he goes, look, they showed me a piece of paper just like this and just takes her paper. <laughs> just <laughs> like, she's like regular she, paper. She's like, you could have just told the story without like, you didn't really need that like why visual you, aid. Yeah, <laughs> why did you You'll see like on her face for a second. She's like, that's all my notes and stuff is on there. Like I have all my next questions. Anyway. That's such but, a good uh, point. <laughs> piece of paper just like this one. It's a weird thing. Like, like uh, it's a very like military guy type thing to do though. This is weird kind of alpha. Oh, like right. kind of, let me just me take your shit right here oh, and show you up here. Anyway. But it's pretty, it's like insane that this was just said. And that's not just like, like if we didn't have such a corrupt press, how do they not talk about that every day? Every day. Like, why does that never come up? Oh, it's like, oh, as we fought all of these wars, no one went, but this is exactly what I heard Mr. Four Star General tell me was your plan. And you've never come to the American people and said, this is my plan. You're just like, so, and what's really interesting about it, right, is it just reveals this prop, like the way propaganda works. Because if you think about it, we start fighting the war in Afghanistan. We're in the war in Afghanistan by late 2001. Um, it's not till 2003, we're in Iraq, right? And then it's not till uh, 2010 that we're in Libya. 2012, we're in Syria, you know, and then, then in Yemen, then in all the, and it's like each time, they had their own little propaganda story for why we had to go into this war now. And you're like, no, motherfucker, this was always planned. You decided in 2001 you were doing this. So don't tell me this is because Gaddafi's about to go genocidal or because Saddam has weapons of mass destruction or because uh, Bashar al-Assad is, is killing his own people. It's like, no, 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 no. This is just your latest little excuse now for the war that you already wanted to do. 
And that's how this shit really works, man. It's like they they decide they want to fight these wars. Then they make up a bullshit excuse that they tell the American people. Then these weapon companies rake in hundreds of billions of dollars in profits and babies get slaughtered. Like That's what really happens. Like innocent men, women, and children die, get exploded to death, starve to death, get displaced. Like it's just the most evil shit in the world. And we want to think of ourselves as the good guys. Well, that's, and that's, by the way, that's the essence of my point with the whole thing in Ukraine too, is that it's like, I'm not, because people go like, oh, you're spreading, you know, Russian propaganda, like my loyalty is to Vladimir Putin or something like that. Ridiculous. But it's like, no, can you at least, even if you support the war in Ukraine, let's say you're like, we have to continue this proxy war of choice in Ukraine. We have to fund Ukraine all the way to the end. Fine. Can you at least acknowledge that our politicians are the biggest hypocrites in the fucking world when they say things like, Vladimir Putin's a war criminal. Vladimir Putin invaded a sovereign nation. Like, come on, man. Did you ever see, by the way, and again, it's just, it's pretty entertaining to me, but uh, Vladimir Putin he um, he gave two speeches, I think, when he first uh, invaded in 2022. Um, but he did one where he like ran down the list of presidents. And he did one where he was uh, like he needled Bill Clinton for his war in Serbia. And he was like, uh, he goes, well, there's a uh, there's an ethnic minority being oppressed. So we have to go to war. Right, Bill Clinton. And then he goes, we got to check out about weapons of mass destruction. Right, George W. Bush. And then like kind of like went down the list of and the point he's essentially making and he's kind of right about it. And he's like, you have no leg to stand on to tell me that I can't do this. Yeah. I can't violate international law. You guys sure can. So why the hell can't I? And and that doesn't mean he's justified in doing it. It means like really none of them are justified. But the level of hypocrisy that America thinks we're in any position to lecture anyone about war. But isn't it fascinating that as long as the people are in a place that we don't have a lot of familiarity with, and as long as the people speak a language that we don't understand and we can't read, it seems like less is going on in some strange way. Like if the United States did what it did to any of these other countries, it did to England. Yeah. Imagine that. Imagine if there was some propped up bullshit reason why they needed to invade England. Holy fucking shit, would that be wild? Yeah. Because then you would have people that speak the same language talking about this, going, what the fuck is going on? Yeah, look the same skin color, same religion, more or less. You know what I mean? Especially England, because England is similarly diverse. Right. It would be everybody. You'd see everybody. You'd be like, what is going on? and, And you would hear from them. They would be able to talk in a language you clearly understand. All the newspapers would reflect their positions. And the craziest Whereas thing, that, like in Sudan or in any other place, any place, we 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 need someone needs to interpret it for us. Right, right. And just well, just like imagine if like we fought crime here with drone bombs or something like that. Well, you know, like they that, were like, oh, there's a drug dealer in this building. He's a suspected uh, killer, and so we're just going to bomb the building. You know, they're and starting like, yeah. to use robots. Yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, not the, not starting, the bombs yet, but no, the robots. No, but they're starting yeah. to deploy robots to fight crime in America. This is literally a fucking Terminator movie. Yeah. It's, it's this some is pretty so creepy cra- shit. crazy that we're ever going to allow them to use robots to fight crime. Like, what are you fucking talking about? Like, what are you talking about? Like, 
first of all, you don't know jack shit about whether or not those things could be hacked, whether someone can take control of it. If it's a computer, there's someone out there smarter than you. They could probably figure out a way to take over that thing. Well, and the crazy thing is that, you know, there's, um, which is a major um, push from the Biden administration. Glenn Greenwald just did a, a video on this the other day. It's really fantastic. Um, but this has been a major push from the Biden administration since he first, but even before he took office, just after the election in 2020, that this is their, their new thing is like a domestic war on terrorism. That the big threat that they're worried about is domestic terrorism, which is a very loose uh, definition. What they're worried about is someone trying to oppose them. Yes, that's it's. There's kind of this war on dissidents. Yes, and it's very creepy that the same people who pushed for these wars in the Middle East are now the ones saying, "Oh yeah, and we need to," and they're calling it the same thing. They're saying we need to bring what we had over there. Right here, they're calling you domestic terrorists. It's the Department of Homeland Security that was created in the name of the war on terrorism. Yeah. This is now going to focus on, you know, this this problem we have here at home, which is like, again, it's just like the fact, like you what you were saying, like, okay, if they did this to England or if they did this to Chicago or whatever, it would be so much more blatant to us, you know, but it's like, oh, well, they do it to Iraq or they do it to Somalia. That just doesn't seem quite as real. Mm -hmm. But you're like, but those people who were okay doing that there, don't be so comfortable that they won't do that to you too. It's like if somebody, uh, um, you know, if there was like someone who had like, you know, uh, like attacked kids and then you were like, yeah, but they did that over in a different neighborhood. I'm letting them babysit my kids today. You're like, Phew. I mean, you know, right. I know it was a different neighborhood where they spoke a different language, but like that person's comfortable killing kids. Like, I don't think you want them anywhere around your kids. And, like, that's kind of what we've got with these people in our government. Like, they're comfortable making decisions where innocent people die and die by the millions. Like, if you add up the death toll of all the wars, it's in the millions. It's somewhere in the range of two to four million. Let's just, let's just go with Vietnam. Go with Vietnam because that's one that's provable that we got in under false pretenses. Yep. That's a and legitimate what is, I think, false two, flag. I think two million uh, Vietnamese and and uh, something like that died. I don't. I I you double check me on that, but it's a lot. And, and that's a war that everybody opposed. Yep. Or so. Well, a lot of people. A lot of people. people a lot of people yeah. opposed. And now everybody opposes. And what's and nobody it's so, thinks it was good. Yes. Yes. Now. Well, it's kind of like the war in Iraq now. Yeah. You know, like everybody kind of ignored. Even John McCain wrote in his memoir, like uh, whoopsie. Yeah, you know, he's good, but that's kind of what it is. Did you see the Tucker Carlson interview on uh, Full Send? I uh, yes, I saw. Um, I didn't watch the entire thing, but I saw a few uh, clips of it when he's talked about uh, how much he regrets supporting yeah. the war in Iraq. Yeah. That's what you're referring to. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I believe him. I think he really means it. I believe him. Too. Sometimes you know, sometimes there's people like there's like John McCain types who go like you know they'll or Hillary Clinton they'll admit. Okay, it was a mistake, but then they still support every subsequent war after that, and they yeah. don't, it doesn't see. Whereas Tucker is like, I'm so ashamed that I supported this; I'll never forgive myself for it, and has opposed every subsequent war after that. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I think this guy really believes it. He's different than people want to pretend he is. First of all, the guy was a deadhead. <laughs> yeah, you know that he used to yeah. follow the dead around. Yeah, so for sure dropped acid. I, that'd be my guess. I would. How how else can you enjoy the music? I oh, I think it's 
legally required that you take an acid at least once if you're going to enjoy the Grateful Dead. I'm not sure. I don't know. I haven't I think brushed that up music on the statutes. Comes alive to LSD, according to my friends who've been there and done that. It's it's really interesting what the um, the public perception of Tucker Carlson is, or or particularly how uh, polarizing he is to people. That it's almost it's almost like you're they're describing a different person than yeah. he actually is. Right. Um, I really, I think he was the most interesting person in cable news, the most thoughtful, most intelligent. Like he was really, he, um, I don't agree with him on anything. You know, on my, uh, on my podcast, we used to do a segment or it was just, it was, I had just done it so many times that we started joking about it being a segment that we called Contra Carlson because mm. I was just disagreeing with him. Like he had all these economic ideas that I completely disagree with. And I disagree with a lot of stuff he said, but he was like such a, like the, the lone voice in like really the corporate press who was completely opposed to the military industrial complex, completely opposed to big pharma and all of the COVID insanity. It was really good on like speaking up about a lot of really important issues, issues that you would think like a good leftist would at least appreciate that he's good on that issue, you yeah. know? And some some of them did. This is what, he's the guy who's having Glenn Greenwald on his show. You know yeah. what I mean? He's the guy who's having Aaron Mattei and Jimmy Dore. Yes. These aren't right-wingers. Yes. He's having like, the, he's having them. A lot them. of left-wingers. So, and it was, it was very interesting. He wasn't a partisan. He would be completely against the Republican Party, was viciously critical of the Republican Party, hates the Republican establishment. And even the stuff, I see, I've seen so many people be like, um, you know, he was a... Uh, he bought into Trump's uh, claims that the election was stolen. And I'm like, I don't know, dude, do you watch him? Because I watch his show. And that's actually not tr He was the guy. He took a lot of heat from this from right-wingers that immediately following the election of 2020, he really aggressively called out Trump's lawyers, uh, Rudy Giuliani and uh, Sidney uh, Powell, I think was the other one, because they were making claims about the Dominion voting machines that they flipped millions of votes. And Tucker Carlson went on his show and he goes, okay, if this is true, it's the biggest story in the history of the United States of America. So what evidence do you have? And he's like, we have reached out privately to, to the, Trump's lawyers. We've gotten nothing in return. So to be clear, they're making this claim and providing nothing to back it up. He really was like, no, no. Now, what he has said later is they'll be like, they'll pull quotes and be like, yeah, but he referred to uh, 2020 as a scam or something like that. And it's like, yeah, but you don't watch his show. So you don't get that, like, what he was saying was, yeah, the Dominion vote flipping thing is bullshit. No one's ever provided any evidence of that. But the fact that big tech and the intelligence agencies work together to undermine the Hunter Biden story to get Joe Biden across the finish line is bullshit. <laughs> like, that's, yeah, that you know what scam. I mean? That's a scam. And he's that's a completely reasonable position to take. Again, it's just, you know, like, look at this, dude. Don Lemon is out at CNN, right? I promise you, whoever replaces Don Lemon has the same exact views as Don Lemon and the same exact views of everybody else at CNN. And that's not true for Tucker Carlson. Right. Like, there's at least there was a guy out there who like would disagree with the with uh, the rest of the people at his network. Yeah, disagree with both political parties. Uh, He's you know? really designed for the internet. I hope he. I hope he goes there. He's going to, unless they've paid him off to like the. I mean. If I was, 
a person in a position of power and a, a wild card like Tucker Carlson got released from Fox News and maybe Rumble makes a deal with him or something like that. Do you have any fucking idea how big that would be? It'd how be big, big his show? It, it could make that that app. It could make that that platform. I mean, yeah. if Tucker Carlson goes over there, it would be worth it for them to invest a considerable amount of money. And, but if I was Fox News, that's the last thing I would want. So I would make sure that we have him locked up for the entire term of some contract, some no compete, and pay well, him off. You'd, you'd be better off just giving him the same amount of money he made when he was on the air. Well, than and you I would wonder have him opposing you. I wonder what he's already under contract for. You know right. what I mean? Like there may already be some clause in his contract that says, you know, if we leave, there's X amount of time. Sure. I don't know. You know, fucking Fox News, man. They're smart. Yeah. They're not stupid. Although, but it was very shocking seeing him leave. Yes, I was I was surprised, although in high one of those things where like I was surprised right away and then like two days later I'm like, How was he ever even there? Like how would this guy was on the eight PM hour at Fox News saying the CIA killed Kennedy? <laughs> like how did how was that ever a real thing? You know, right. like he it's did like it's, say that. it's insane. He was like it but what's crazy to me is that like so many progressives have like it's like you're, it's like invasion of the body snatchers or something. Mm -hmm. It's like, is this the real you, man? Have you just right. been replaced with an NPC? The right. 8 p.m. hour at Fox News is saying the CIA killed Kennedy. That's not interesting to you. Right. That's not like something. Like I'm not saying you have to agree with them on everything, but like that's not kind of that's different than Bill O'Reilly. Yeah. That's a different. This is a different world we're living in now. Yes. Like this is something that, uh, and um, yeah, it just seems like kind of surreal now looking back at it almost, but. I Bill O'Reilly did leave and he went and started a podcast or something, I think. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, he's got something, I think. The problem is his average viewer was like 86 years yeah, old. They're and they're on like, the border. A, a podcast now? Yeah. What's that? Yeah. Um, Getting them to download an app. Good luck. Like, <laughs> whew, like I'm going to have to call my Where grandson. Is <laughs> Where is it? How does it work? <laughs> I need to be angry. This is just just talking to like uh, my like in-laws about like scanning a document or something like that. Yeah. I know, let alone you know telling them how to download an app and listen to a podcast. Right. I don't know. That Try might to talk to your mom through one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, you know, it, but it is. I do think it's very interesting. I'm very interested to see what his uh, his next move is. It's got to um, be the internet. It'd be crazy to do anything other. Well, there's nothing else. I mean, he's not going to CNN. He's not going yeah. back to CNN or back to MSNBC. By the way, he used to be on both of those uh, networks. I know. But he got a while. lot better since he was on those networks, and they got a lot worse. Yeah. It was a different time when he was on those networks. I mean, there was a video that was just uh, released. Who is he interviewing? Is he interviewing Britney Spears, I think? Like, from 20 years ago. It's like you're, you're watching this young Tucker Carlson with a bow tie on <laughs> CNN. You're like, wow. This yeah. is kind of crazy. I think Him and podcasts, Rachel Maddow used to like uh, have like a friendly back and forth. Like they disagree, but it was like totally friendly when they were both on MSNBC together. And it was like what it was. You look at it now, you're like, wow, what a different world that those two could even be in the same room together. But I think that that what happened is it just the internet? Is it is it when people get together in these echo chambers and they reinforce each other's ideas to the point where anybody that opposes that is just the enemy? Is it just some tribal thing that just automatically happens? when people are out allowed to gather in large groups like they do on social media I think that certainly plays a role um, the, a, a major role um, I think that there's also like I think the thing kind of came unglued like the establishment kind of came unglued um, I think the 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 George W Bush administration um, 
the wars in the financial crisis really set into motion like a bad, dangerous thing where it almost like, there, I think there was like an effort to distract away from the, like I think there were powerful people who wanted to distract away from how much the powerful people had fucked over the country. Mm. And then they, there was kind of like this effort to pit people against each other. And then I think it was very easy for people to fall into that and just get very, very tribal and very, very isolated. I also think there was like this knee jerk reaction from journalists to not confront their own obvious failure like right. in that they hadn't really been reporting on the things that actually, you know what I mean? Like imagine there was this like ticking time bomb, like the subprime mortgage, yeah. you know, uh, uh, crisis and you were just oblivious to it. Right. And you've been reporting on all these stories and you weren't reporting on the time bomb that was about to blow up on the working class in America. So now what do you report on? Racism. You know, it's, yeah. oh, this, the, the problem is that this other guy is lying to you. And, and when Trump got elected, which I think very much was a reaction to a lot of that stuff, um, I think that then it was like, that's when it really all fell apart because the media, it, it was so obvious that this guy who you were telling everyone, well, this guy can't possibly win and no one cares about what he has to say. And then tens of millions of people did care about what he had to say and voted for him. It was like their failure was that much more exposed. And so they just had to snap into like other explanations for what happened here. No, it's not that we failed on the job for 30 years. It's that Russia and racism and misinformation and like all of this stuff. Um, but I do think in a lot of ways it was a concerted effort. You ever see that um, uh, that cartoon, which it's like a, a banker in like his corner office and outside his window is all the Occupy Wall Street people protesting and he's on the phone and he says, introduce them to identity politics. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I'm not saying, I don't know if it went down exactly that way, but I think that cartoon's getting at something. Uh, like I think there's a reason, I, I just don't Do you think the government believe. is that competent that they could brilliantly socially engineer civilization that way? I think a lot of the private interests that own our government are pretty competent, actually. You know, I think the government works in very sloppy ways, but if you look at it like, if you look at it from the perspective of, say, like, you know, Lockheed Martin and, and Pfizer and companies making, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in profits, they're actually working very well. You know, like the system's yeah. working very well toward that end. And um, I just don't think it was completely organic that after we had these disastrous wars and a financial crisis and after you had the Tea Party and the Occupy Wall Street movement, that all of a sudden on some grassroots level, we were like, we need to have a national conversation about chicks with dicks. Yeah. Like, I don't think that just happened. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that's like every day. That's what we got to talk about now. That's the new thing. What is the, the gentleman's I'm beautiful name from trans Russia. women. I'm sorry. The, the trans. Uh, I mean, excuse me. The, uh, the the Russian guy who used to work for the KGB. Yuri. Yes, I know you're Yuri, talking about. Um, is, what is his last name? Jamie ben, Bentonov. Oh, he, I know exactly what you're talking about. Who gave the the, the like lectures on how yeah. the Soviet Union was destroying America in the next generation? And he he talked about this in 1984. Mm -hmm. This was during the Soviet Union time. Yuri Bezmenov. Yep, that's him. Yuri Bezmenov gave a speech describing exactly America in 2023, describing how he, Russia had eroded, the Soviet Union had eroded all of our institutions and gotten in there and implanted ideas of Marxism 
and reinforce these ideas and that this was undoubtedly going to lead to the demise of America. There is the uh, way, but the way he lays it out, it's it's compelling. And there's definitely a lot of things that kind of happened exactly like he said they would happen. Yeah. Um, and it's not, you know, it's all, it's kind of evolved. It's not really, like traditional Marxism is kind of dead. No one's really advocating for like government ownership of the means of production. It's more now, it's just kind of like, it's really like corporate control of government with this weird, like what they call cultural Marxism, which I don't like the term because it means different things to so many different people. But the idea that like Marx had this economic view that everything, all of human history was a class struggle between like the oppressor class and the oppressed class. And if you like applied that to cultural issues, that's it's like describes wokeism to a T. Yeah. That everything can be reduced to like white, black, straight, gay, cis, trans, men, women. Like mm -hmm. it's like everything is like the oppressor class versus the oppressed. Yeah. Which is such a shallow, stupid way of analyzing yeah. anything. It's just it's there's so much more to reality than that simplistic way of looking at things. But it's so attractive to people, which is yeah. really fascinating. And that was what Yuri had described in the speech and how it would become, how it would captivate people. It's just, I don't want to believe, you know, here's an interesting thing about something like that. Like even though we're saying everything he described seems to be happening right now, he describes wokeism to a T, describe what's happening in this country to a T, I still, have an impulse, an undeniable impulse to reject it. Like, no, they didn't do that. No, they're not that smart. No, that's not what happened. There's a part of me, for whatever weird reason, and I think everybody has this part of that, yeah. that doesn't want to believe that something's happening while it's happening. There's a thing that's going on right now because we're so accustomed to being able to do what we do we're so accustomed to be able to drive to work and do this and hang out with your family and go out with your friends. We're so accustomed to this. We don't imagine a world, despite all of the evidence of history, you could go see the Colosseum in Rome. You could go see the, uh, uh, the Acropolis and the Parthenon. You can go see all of these great empires that no longer exist. There's just stone structures where these people used to rule the fucking world. But in our mind, that was then. And right now, everything's amazing. And we're perfect. And if we could just get a trans president, we could fucking <laughs> solve this. Like, we're, we, are, we believe in the moment. Yeah. We, we can't look at the vast amount of data that shows, up the, shows us the same patterns of behavior that humans are exhibiting right now have led to disastrous consequences in the collapse of civilizations. And it's so easy when you look at those past civilizations to be like, how did you guys not see it coming? I mean, right. it's all around you. Right. Like, how are you not completely against? You know, it's, there's so many examples like this, right? You, it's very easy to, and I have the same impulse. It's very easy to look in the past and be like, sweet, there was slavery and you were just like okay with it like you weren't against that every single day and then you're just like now we of course down the road as a state prison there's a bunch of people there for weed but that's totally different that you know what i mean yeah. like but it's like i don't know in a hundred years if that all got cleaned up you'd look back at that with the exact same view well, you'd be like you enslaved people for like that. bullshit people are writing about it on their phones which are literally made by yes. slaves it's like there's right there's like all of this stuff right around you but if you try to zoom out and you try your best to be disinterested and just analyze. And you go, okay, 
So what are, where are we right now at the United States of America? So we are a republic that turned into an empire, got expanded all over the world, something I think 700-something bases in 135 different countries, trying to rule the entire world. Through the process of doing that, we've spent ourselves $30 trillion into debt, and now we see massive cultural decay into just like decadence. Yeah. What's that story? If that's not a crumbling empire, I don't know what a crumbling empire is. I hear the America Fuck Yeah song in the background. That's <laughs> yeah. what I hear. America, <laughs> fuck yeah. Come and say oh, Those guys are so great. Day, yeah. That's dude, is there hear. anything better? That movie was so great, dude. It's amazing. Where they go over and just like destroy the whole place and they'd be like, you're welcome. <laughs> to it's one of the greatest movies of all time. So great. So great. It's fun. That and the South Park movie. The South Park oh, movie so when Saddam funny. Hussein has a sexual affair with Hitler. <laughs> oh, no, it was the devil. Excuse me. Yes, yes. Yeah, was, was Hitler the, in that too? No, 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 it was Satan. No, it was Satan and Saddam right. Hussein, and Satan's like the That's sub. Right. Oh like my god! Like Satan's the, the. That's right. And then there was real dicks. They they could show a photo of a real dick somehow or another. Yeah, they always figured out like, a way to do it. <laughs> They're so on point, dude. Throughout the years, they've always just been so on point. It's the best show of all time. Yeah. It's the best comedy show of all time by far. I, you know, I just introduced my 12-year-old to it the other day, and she's oh, yeah. blown away. 12 is a good age. Yeah, I'm like, it's a perfect age. I'm like, she hears me talk. Like, I'm yeah. not very filtered. You know, I always tell them, don't say bad words around adults and other people. Be respectful. But they're just words. Yeah, that's what I, a good. What I'm worried about is your feelings. I'm worried about what is your intent. It's not what I'm not worried about is words. I'm just at the age my my daughter is four and my my son is one, and I'm just at the age now where I'm starting to hear some of the words that I say ah. coming back out, and you're like, ah, so that's going to be the next chapter. When my daughter He's dealing was with three, this. my youngest daughter was three. We were skiing, and uh, we were leaving the uh, hotel. We had packed all our stuff up, and uh, my wife realized she goes. Um, I forgot to pack the uh, the helmet in like this one bag, and my three year old goes, "Shit!" <laughs> <laughs> and me and my wife look at each other and go, oh, "No, just, oh no!" You're like, "All right." It's so funny too because like she was a sigh too, it was a sigh shit like, "Shit!" It's just so real. <laughs> like she wasn't like trying to say no, a bad word. It's just she a, knew a that's completely... the word you say. Just the, somebody fucked up and forgot to put the helmet in the bag. It's everything's packed and stuffed in. It's, it's shit. Dude, it's so funny because you have like this life, right? Where you're like, so you're like with your wife when you're just a couple before you have kids, and you're just a couple. You know, you say whatever you want, and then even when you have little babies, it's like it's just not even a thing. And then right around that age, where you go, ah. Yeah, so we have listening. we have something to, to yeah. confront here. There's two paths. Number one, I can try to watch my mouth, and I'm like, babe, I'm going to be honest with you. Very low percentage chance that that yeah. works out well. And the other one is what you said, where you're just like, okay, let them understand it's just a word, but also let them know, okay, look, there's there's time and places where you can't use these words. My parents were hippies. You know, my mother and my stepfather were hippies. So from the time I was like seven years old, they told me you could say whatever you want. They were like, just don't don't say it at school. Don't. They you had know, no idea just... the monster they were creating. <laughs> my mom actually <laughs> talked about it the other night we were having dinner. She's like, maybe I should have set some boundaries. <laughs> so you can say whatever you want to as big an audience as you want to, little Joe Rogan. Yeah, it was interesting. <laughs> it was interesting growing up that way because like that, their perspective was like everything that the establishment has created is wrong. Like this is not the way to live. You know, and right. that, that was the whole hippie movement. 
you know, my stepfather had like really long hair. The whole thing was very interesting to grow up that way because, you know, from the time I was seven, I was like, I was felt like an outsider because I had moved a lot. But then also I had these parents that were really open-minded and very liberal. And they just, they, they were like, this is all bullshit. Like when I remember like being a child when the war in Vietnam ended, I think I was like 10 years old or something like that thinking, this is great. Now we're not gonna have wars anymore. I thought I really thought that man. I really I remembered that to, and I remember being blown away Me and my friend Jimmy were watching the uh, Iraq war It was like whatever year that was well what the year? first one the, the first HW one. Which, year was, uh, was 1991 91 that makes sense because uh, I was living with my friend Jimmy and uh, We'd just come home from work and we were watching on TV and he right. looks at me and goes. What do you know? We're at fucking war and yeah. I was like, what do you know? We're at fucking war. Like, this is real. Like, this is crazy. Like, I thought we figured this out. I thought we weren't doing this anymore. And you know what's cr so crazy about that first war in Iraq? Is that, because I remember I was a, a little kid, a very little kid. I was born in 83, so I was, you know, eight uh, when we first fought that war. But I was, I remember being aware of it. I remember seeing the speech when George H.W. Bush announced we were going. Um, and they, the whole, like, all those same neocons who later went to Project for a New American Century, they were all in the George H.W. Bush administration, and then they went into his son's administration. And they all said that they had conquered Vietnam syndrome, as they called it. You see, from their perspective, uh, the country had this, this terrible Vietnam syndrome after Vietnam, meaning that people didn't really want to fight wars. They had this attitude that, like, we shouldn't fight wars because they can be really bad. But see, now George H.W. Bush, this hero, he, uh, he, he conquered that because they showed how easy the war was. Look, we fought a war now. It's so easy because America is so powerful. We just stormed right in there. Minimal uh, loss of life on our side. Uh, very few casualties on the American side. What, toppled it right in there. You know, let Saddam Hussein stay in power, but easy peasy, that war's over. What and terrible. Joe, 30 years later, we still have a military presence in Iraq. That's how easy that war was, is that all of these years later, the war, and the war continued through Clinton, not technically a war, but a full blockade of the country, bombing campaigns, massive sanctions, tons of people dying. I don't know exactly how much. The UN had a study, um, which I think is bullshit, but they said 500,000 children had died from starvation and malnutrition during the sanction campaign in why the 90s. Why do you think it's bullshit? I saw someone, I, I don't exactly remember, but I saw someone make an argument for why their estimations were wrong and the study wasn't right. So it, it, anyway, he was arguing and it seemed pretty compelling. It seems like, oh, that actually sounds right, that they were like counting the wrong way, kind of. Um, so it probably wasn't 500,000, but maybe it was 100,000, whatever. It was like children just starving due to the, this blockade. And it was also one of the main things that really pissed off Osama bin Laden and radicalized him against uh, America. It was one of his stated grievances in his declaration of war on America because we kept, we kept the bases in Saudi Arabia to you know, uh, enforce the blockade around Iraq. Mm. And he was like, okay, so you have your bases in our holy land to starve other Muslims to death. And that pissed off a lot of people over there. Um, but yeah, that war, man, that war, which they sold it as like, look what an easy victory it was in many ways really locked us into a, a war for decades. I remember the first casualties when a Scud missile uh, hit those soldiers. I remember that was like shocking yeah. that a, a certain number of people had died like that We were so 
we, we, we had given into this idea that it would be just, they would storm it and that's it. And once that narrative got set, like, oh, the United States is just wiping out the army. Like, there is no army. It's a joke. The right. whole thing's a joke. They're like, whew, no one's going to die. And then when people did die, you're like, whoa. But then it becomes normal. It becomes normal. It becomes no- the idea of losing soldiers becomes normal. And then all these other military actions start happening. Yeah. And then 9-11 happens. And then the big ones happen. And then it becomes normal for us. And then you're not allowed to take photographs of coffins anymore. Remember those? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Couldn't, they, they didn't allow journalists to take photographs of flag-draped coffins, which is, what is that? What is that? I mean, we, until this Ukraine war, like the Ukraine war, you, you're seeing cell phone footage right. of war atrocities. You're seeing cell phone footage of people. I saw a guy get killed with a hammer. They killed a guy with a sledgehammer. You're seeing people get shot in foxholes at close range. You're seeing like HD footage of this stuff. It's, the war becomes very abstract to people who haven't experienced it, I think. It's it's hard to even believe or wrap your head around. Like it's so yeah. hard. It's hard to even think that like in that in a, a society where we mean we have the technology that me and you are sitting in this room and we're also speaking to like millions of people and we'll you know go to a shop and buy something and get lunch and then we'll go do comedy tonight and someone will be like oh great show thank you very much it's just like a civilized society that we still just have mass murder sprees. Where we just agree, like we're gonna go, like we haven't figured out a different way to settle these disputes. It's it's like it's hard to actually believe, um, like and it's it's uh it's hard. And certainly for me, I don't think anyone's completely capable who hasn't seen it, and certainly that applies to me of like really understanding what that is. Um, but it's bad, and it's just like I don't know. It just I can't like I can't believe more people aren't just. You know, Fiona Hill, had, I think I talked about this last time I was on, but uh, Fiona Hill, who uh, she, she, again, this is in Foreign Affairs magazine, not like the, not like Ron Paul Weekly. You know what I mean? Like, I think Ron Paul's the greatest hero ever, but I'm saying this isn't like what the kooky libertarians say, like me. This yeah. is like Fiona Hill in Foreign Affairs magazine. She was the one who reported that they had a peace deal worked out. Basically, you know, in pencil, not in pen, but like in, in principle, they had a peace deal worked out. And that Boris Johnson as a representative of the West, went over there and convinced Zelensky not to negotiate. Not to negotiate. Don't you give him one inch. It's like they want, and this is what it seems like for real, it seems like they want this war. They want to prolong it to bleed the Russians dry. That's their plan. And you're like, Jesus, man. But why wouldn't they be that evil? I mean, why wouldn't they be that evil when they're that evil everywhere else? That's what's fucked up. It's hard for us to think that's a fact. Yeah, it's it's hard for us to when you're going about your day, just hanging out in New York and fucking visiting your favorite coffee shop. It's hard to believe that you're a part of that. Yeah. Well, it's one of the things that's like, I guess it's like after a while, like one of the things that helps me understand this is like you look at people in their track record is that we have a very short attention span, you know, as a country. But it's like when you look at so one of the absolute best people on the war in Russia and Ukraine, people really want to learn about this stuff, is uh, John Mearsheimer, who is the dean of the realist school of foreign policy. He's like a world-renowned scholar. This guy is not, again, not a non-interventionist libertarian like me, just like a scholar who's like, talks about foreign policy and Mm -hmm. stuff. And he's written and 
spoken extensively about Ukraine, Russia, and he was one of the big opponents of this whole uh, policy. And meanwhile, so after the you know after the government was overthrown, the one that Gideon Rose was so happy about when we stole mm-hmm. Ukraine away, we stole Robin from Batman. Victoria Newland and Gideon Rose and all of those people who were pushing for this policy, they all said, this is wonderful. Ukraine is choosing to join the liberal world order and they're choosing democracy and hope and everything's going to be wonderful for them. Their country's going to flourish. And John Mearsheimer said, and his quote was, it was in a lecture he gave in 2015, uh, he said, America is leading Ukraine down the primrose path. And which uh, I didn't understand what that means exactly, but it sounds real good. But what it means basically is like we're leading you down this beautiful path that ends in your demise. And that Mm. basically we were encouraging them to play tough with the Russians. And it's like, don't worry, you got America's got your back. You know, it's like you it's like you convincing some dude who doesn't know how to fight. Like, go fight this guy because like I got your back. And they're like, oh, okay, well, Joe Rogan's a black belt. He's got my back. I'll go fucking fight this guy. And then when you fight the guy, you're like, well, I'm not going to, like, jump in the fight with you. But, like, I'll yell instructions to you while you're in the fight. You're like, throw him in an arm bar. And they're like, what's an arm bar? You know, and, like, just get it. So we, like, led them down this path. And so, like, okay, maybe you don't agree, but, like, whose prediction was better? John Mearsheimer's or, you know, Gideon Rose? You know, who who was who predicted what was happening here better? The guy who said this was going to be disaster for Ukraine, or the guy who said, "Yay, Batman, we're, yeah, Robin. we're we're stealing Robin away." Ha ha! We distracted you, Putin, with the Olympics. It's like, oh, that distraction didn't uh, work very well. Um, and so it's just like it's it's horrible. Like, but that's kind of that's one of the the things that you know. One of the things that's so interesting about this this war too is like when people will defend it. You, I almost want to ask people. So why, if this war is so necessary, or it's so necessary for us to arm them, why shouldn't we intervene militarily? Why, why isn't America's military going into Ukraine? Why aren't we invading Russia? Why aren't we at least occupying Ukraine and forcing? We certainly have the conventional forces to force Russia's army out of there, no problem. So why aren't we doing that? And the reason we're not doing that is because everyone knows, oh, we can't do that because that's nuclear war. That's nuclear war in a certainty. So you're like, okay, so that's nuclear war. So no, that's off the table. Biden's not even suggesting that. But so then what does it go from like a certainty of nuclear war to what's the risk of nuclear war if we're just fighting a proxy war and giving them hundreds of billions of dollars and pledging till the end that will drive Russia out? Well, the risk doesn't go to zero. You know what I mean? It goes to right. something maybe less, but it's still something. But it's so we're still not, terrifying. Still way more than we should be willing to take yeah if vancouver got armed by the russians and you were then vancouver was uh attacking seattle yeah like what do you think would happen no everyone knows i mean everyone knows what would happen america would start blowing shit up like crazy yeah we would go to war with the world if anyone ever and look jack kennedy fucking said it Right. He literally said that. I mean, literally, but he basically said he said, you put these missiles in Cuba, I will blow up the world. I'm treating this as a preemptive nuclear strike on America. If you do that, get those missiles the hell off of Cuba. And I think most people go, yeah, that's reasonable. You know, like it's kind of reasonable to say we cannot tolerate Soviet nuclear warheads pointed at us from a little island a few miles off our coast. That's just like can't be. And like, look, we have a Monroe Doctrine. Monroe Doctrine says 
that America does not tolerate any faraway power coming in and interfering in our realm of influence, okay? And essentially what Vladimir Putin has been saying for years was like, well, I want a Monroe Doctrine for Ukraine. Like, I want a Monroe Doctrine for this part of the world. And that doesn't mean he's a good guy, and that doesn't mean that that's a perfect system, but at least prior to invading Ukraine, he had a point. Like, he had a reasonable point to say, I don't want you interfering in my biggest neighbor right here, and a, and a very strategically important area to him. Dude, hold that thought. I got to pee. Yeah. All right, we're back. Um, so the, the, the leaked document, like, what was your thoughts on that? Because the, the whole thing was crazy that this guy had access to it. That and I guess he was showing it to his friends or something. Is that yeah. what it was? Yeah. Well, it seems that way. You know, a lot of people kind of were uh, were criticizing the guy, and they they were kind of saying like, "Well, look, this guy's no Ed Snowden. I mean, he didn't like take this to Glenn Greenwald at the Guardian right. to have him vet through it and properly disclose it. He's like bragging to friends on a Discord server or whatever. And essentially, that seems right to me. Like that does kind of seem like what happened, but. Again, like, that's not the interesting story here. The interesting story isn't, like, what this guy's deal was or what his motives were. The story is, like, oh, the government's lying to you again. And also that it's they have this uh, information that they claim is so vital that it's so horrible he leaked it. And yet you're so reckless with it that, you know, it's like, uh, it's funny. I remember Glenn Greenwald making this point when people would talk about uh, like people were at the national security apparatus or whatever would be talking about how how reckless it is that Snowden just like gave all of this information out and you're like well then weren't you pretty reckless too because right. like if this information's so vital you didn't even know it was gone right they didn't even know it was gone until uh, the Guardian published it and then they were like oh I guess this guy took all of our documents um, what another uh, really, what did the documents say well uh, just right before okay. that one of the the other real interesting thing is that they came out so a, a couple days after uh, the leak first like was getting reported, the um, Reuters had a piece, an article, uh, where they had three high-level U.S. officials under anonymity said that, you'll never believe this, Joe, it had all the hallmarks of Russian, Russian disinformation. disinformation. And so isn't it just amazing that they'll go, and then like two days later, they completely gave up on that and went, let's just smear the kid who did it. You know, like uh, forget all that stuff. Um, there were some, some interesting uh, revelations from, from the documents, things like uh, they, um, evidently there are NATO and US military embedded in Ukraine, um, like help assisting them basically. Uh, which is which is pretty dangerous. Um, Western special forces operating inside Ukraine. <clears throat> One yeah. document dated 23 March refers to the presence of a small number of Western special forces operating inside Ukraine without specifying their activities or location. The UK has the largest contingent, 50, followed by Latvia, 17, France, 15, and the US, 14, the Netherlands, 1. Western governments typically refrain from commenting on such sensitive matters, but this detail is likely to be seized upon by Moscow which has in recent months argued that it is not just confronting Ukraine, but NATO as well. Oh. And, and essentially, look, this was the, um, uh, I think what, when Putin ultimately decided to invade Ukraine last year, 
I think basically what he concluded was that they did it. They brought Ukraine into NATO. Even though Ukraine is not an official NATO country, at this point, they backed the coup that overthrew the, Democratic, uh, the democratically elected government under Yanukovych. They poured weapons into the country, and they were doing um, joint training exercises with NATO and the Ukrainian military. And I think Vladimir Putin was basically like, we told them this was our brightest of red lines, and they crossed it. And I got to do something. Now, yeah. I'm not saying he should have done this. There's other things he could have done. Um, there's lots of things. He, I mean, I don't know exactly. You get creative. But he could have cut off all natural gas to Europe. He could have dropped a nuke in the ocean. I mean, he could have done something before he did this, you know. But he basically concluded that Ukraine is, is de facto a member of NATO. And if you look at the way we're responding to this whole thing, he's, he's kind of right. I mean, like, we're backing them all the way because they were invaded. That's what we're supposed to do to a NATO country, you know. Um, and so this is bad that this comes out. Although I got to say, I'm surprised to some degree how much, uh, you know, they've, I mean, nor if the Nord Stream bombing didn't, you know, like do it, I don't know if just like some special forces being embedded there is going to like, you know, create some big escalation. But, um, but yeah, this, the this Nord is something. The Nord Stream bombing is wild. Well, look, dude, I mean, there's been in the because, last you know, year, Trump predicted that Germany, if they don't if they don't take steps to stop this, they're going to be completely dependent upon Russian oil. And it was one of those things where people were making fun of him at the time. Like, what are you talking about? I don't know. I don't know if I completely agree with Trump on that. But there's there's no question that... But they are dependent upon it now, right? Because of the Nord Stream pipeline blowing up? Well, not anymore. It's, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of, a lot of people were... A lot of very powerful people were very against the Nord Stream pipeline. Right. I have a different uh I have a different view of it. I think it's it was great. Um but I you know there's you think it was great? Yes. Why? Um because the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world was Germany and Russia going to war. In World War II, something like thirty million people died just in that conflict. It's like the worst thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. And so for them to be interconnected and interdependent, which is how I would see it, trading, you know, like where goods cross borders, armies don't have to, that old saying, mm -hmm. I think it would have been a good thing for them to be together. Oh, look, now you're directly incentivized to not be enemies because you want the, the cheap natural gas and they want your money for their cheap natural gas. And so, I, however, there is there's a big view um from like the neoconservatives and the neoliberals, the kind of establishment that this is the scariest thing. The scariest thing is that uh, Germany and Russia align. Um, and I, I, I don't know exactly if this is true, but some people like, um, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but the guy who founded uh, Stratford, uh, Friedman, I believe is his name. He basically said that this is the centerpiece of American foreign policy since World War II. That like the whole idea of NATO is to like keep Germany in and Russia out and that their biggest fear is that uh, Germany and Russia would unite. unite against us and that that could be the only thing that could really challenge American power is like the ingenuity of Germany with the manpower and natural resources of Russia. So there's a lot of people who have been against this from the very beginning. Um, no one would ever think of that today. Like the, your, your average person today would think maybe Germany and Russia could unite again. <laughs> well, you know, it's the you know what I mean? Like that's not. 
But to those, well, to, you know, to some people, look, the, the neoconservatives um, who uh, are, and let me say this delicately, well, let me preface this. I'm Jewish, okay? So let me just say that. There's a, there are a lot of Jewish people in the neoconservative like movement. And they're, this is part of the reason why they're very, very pro-Israel. Um, it's also part of the reason, and I'll say somewhat understandably, while like it's a big German independence is a big concern to them. They still live with that kind of like, this is the great fear that mm. Germany will rise again one day. And like, oh, if they're connected with Russia like this, ooh, they're not under the EU's thumb and NATO's thumb anymore. Now they could possibly go in a different direction. So for years, there were a lot of people who were against this. Um, now, when Ukraine uh, invaded, I'm sorry, when Russia invaded Ukraine, they did turn off the pipe, like, like uh, Germany was boycotting. Not, so they weren't using any of the gas from the pipe. However, They've also adopted all of these crazy like climate policies and like completely destroyed a lot of their own internal energy sources. Like they've denuclearized and all that stuff. And so I think the concern was that going into winter, what if there is pressure on them to decide to turn these pipes on and that this might be uh, then Germany might start, you know siding with Russia, or at least if they're getting their natural gas from Russia, they're not going to be so harsh on, on Russia, and they're not going to be so willing to play ball with the EU. And there's already, you know, like a history of this, like what I was talking about before at the Bucharest summit in 2008, when they announced Ukraine was going into, um, it would would eventually join NATO. Uh, it was it was Merkel was really against it. They got that in over her wishes. So they're already a little concerned that, like, maybe Germany is not quite as anti-Russia as we are. And so going into the winter, I think they were concerned there was going to be a strain on, on power in Germany. And they might be tempted to uh, turn that, that pipeline back on. Jesus and so Christ. they made sure it's, uh, as Victoria imagine? Newland said, a hunk of metal at the bottom of the sea. Could you fucking imagine if some time in the future we're going to war with Germany and Russia united against America? Yeah. Well, I think I, I think what's much more of a concern than that to me right now, at least, is look at how crazy is this that over the last year, while this war has been going on, NATO has been attacked twice. There was missiles in, in Poland and there was the Nord Stream bomb. And those are two attacks on NATO. And yet both of them didn't come from Russia. You know what I mean? Now, if you remember, do you remember the story a few months back? So there was a, these missiles hit Poland, killed a couple people there. Zelensky immediately said this was Putin and that the West has to respond. And then eventually, a couple days later, it came out it was actually Ukraine. And they were like, oh, it was an accident. That's what they say it's an accident. I mean, who knows? Maybe it was intentional to try to blame on Russia or something like that. But even saying it was an accident, okay, they accidentally attacked NATO. And then the Nord Stream pipeline, which was clearly not Russia. <laughs> like, no, that was what they said at first. Oh, this is a Russia blew up their own pipeline. For, why? You saw the video of Biden saying that they would do something like that? Yeah, they, he promised that it would happen. Yeah. You know. Which and, is just wild. The whole, the whole thing is just, it's all in front of our faces. Well, it's an act of industrial terrorism and like environmental terrorism to do this. And, you know, Cy Hirsch reported, and I trust that guy a lot more than I trust most other uh, journalists, and he reported that it was America. Um, even, I think, the New York Times now concluded that they said it was some pro-Ukrainian group. And you're like, okay, but 
that includes all of us. <laughs> like, well, do, you see, do you see the the article in the New York Times that said maybe we shouldn't? Know? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's great journalism right there. We don't know who <laughs> it was. The title was literally something like "We don't know who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, and that might be for the best or something." Something along those lines. <laughs> it's like you can't like I don't know. You can't make this shit up. Like that really, is such a crazy thing for a journalist to write. Well, I I mean I remember sometimes you can just kind of like, you know, you can just look at these things logically. Like I remember. Um, in 2017 is when I was, uh, when I was still a contributor on uh, Essie Cup show and she was at uh, CNN and the, the big story came out that Assad had gassed his own people. And I remember right away, and this is before any, any of those like OCPW uh, whistleblowers came out or anything like that. But just right away, I remember the day after being on TV and just being like, I don't think he did this. And they're like, how can you say that? Everyone's saying he did this. And you're like, well, look at it. It's like two weeks ago, Trump announced that we're leaving Syria. Like we're withdrawing from Syria. He won after this five-year bloody civil war where he's been fighting for his life to not be Muammar Gaddafi. He has just announced that he won. And so now you're telling me for no strategic military advantage, he just did the one thing that will keep this war going and ma- can maybe end up like Muammar Gaddafi. Like that doesn't make any sense. I don't. I, I'm not buying this. And then it did kind of come out as these whistleblowers were like, yeah, 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 it didn't come from the sky. It came from the ground, and it was done in you know rebel-controlled territory. And like, it, this does not look like it was Assad. Um, but I remember when they first. It was like the same thing when they first got. We think Russia blew up their own pipeline. Like, but why? Why would they? Like this just so you're telling me Vladimir Putin just took away the option that Germany might cave this winter and want to buy his natural gas again? Why would he do that? And then of course it comes out later like no, that's not what it was. It was probably British intelligence or uh, some some U.S. allied group, if not directly us. And so yeah, that's pretty crazy. It's pretty hard to like look at that and still feel like we're just the good guys yeah. in this war. And again, when I say we, just for everyone, disclaimer for this entire. Like those great Eminem lyrics. I'm all for America. Fuck the government. When I say America did this or America's wrong, I'm not talking about you or your daddy or your hometown or anything like that. <laughs> I'm just talking about like Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Dick Cheney and Donald Trump and, you know, all of them. Bill Clinton, Jeffrey Epstein's rapist friend. That's who I'm talking about. <laughs> Turns out these guys aren't good people. It's so wild when you, you if you looked at us from outside of us and you you looked at the human race and these patterns that repeat themselves over and over again you would wonder like why aren't they seeing these patterns like why don't they recognize when these things are happening as they've happened to so many civilizations before like what is it about watching everything erode before your eyes that's not shocking enough to wake people up to what's happening well it's sometimes i think there's kind of like a pattern and there's big forces at play that are hard for individuals to get a hold of, mm-hmm. you know? Like, there's kind of this thing where there's, like, governments are power centers, and they're just, they're, it's not just, like, in the same way every business kind of wants to get bigger, wants to have more profit, you want to have more listeners to your podcast. You want to have. You just kind of want more. But the government isn't in the in the market. It's not like, oh, I have to provide something of value in order to get more people voluntarily to listen to my show or come to my business or something like that. They're in the game of take things. They're in the game of force. 
Mm. You pay your taxes or you go to jail. You know, like this, that's the government is a monopoly on legal aggression, like on force. And so governments, it's almost impossible to stop them from just getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the bigger they get, the more corrupt things get and the more power they have. And it's almost like this cycle, you know, where like if a government is limited, then the country is prosperous because they have more freedom. And then the more prosperous they are, the more the government has that they can leech off of. And then the government gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's almost like I don't know what can happen to stop that cycle. You know, the thing that makes me optimistic is that they really rely on propaganda. Like they really need the propaganda and they know it. You know, they know they can't just like roll out the vaccine mandates without a huge propaganda campaign. They got to convince you and then try to get away with their tyrannical policies. And I do think that the propaganda is being undermined more than ever. More than ever. Like, it's really, really hard for them. It'd be really, really hard for them to sell us on some next bullshit policy. Much harder than it used to be. And think about how easy it was after 9-11. George Bush could have done whatever he wanted to. Yeah. Well, that's how we got into Iraq. Yeah. I mean, he had a blank check. Yeah. Everybody was like, take care of it. Yep. Take care of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember feeling... The, the strangest sense of patriotism driving down the road and seeing everybody with an American flag hanging off their car. Yeah. People were all in. Yeah, dude. I was 18 when 9-11 happened, and I was living in uh, Prospect Heights, which is like it's um, if Flatbush Avenue kind of runs down to the Manhattan Bridge, and the Brooklyn Bridge is down there too. It's like a couple miles away from the World Trade Center. And I remember um, get, we got out of school. I, w- I think I was a senior in high school. And we got out of school, and I remember walking to my house at Flat and, and looking down Flatbush Avenue. So this has been a couple hours now since the the towers came down, and seeing people covered head to toe in soot, like walking, like they walked over the Brooklyn Bridge and just came home because there's like no subways running or nothing. So they're just walking, just covered, like oh that guy got caught in the you know in the middle of it. And it was a crazy feeling in the city. The whole thing was insane. It seemed like we, it, it seemed impossible. No one could ever hit us. This is America in the 90s. You know, I mean, it wasn't the 90s, but it was It was still the 90s until right. 9-11. You know right. what I mean? Right. Um, and you were like, this, can't, this is impossible. This couldn't happen. And I remember when George W. Bush came and gave that speech on the, the megaphone. Yeah. And it was, it was like almost perfect in his simplistic you know, way where he goes, I want you to know we hear you in Washington, D.C. And pretty soon the people who knocked down these towers – they're going to hear you too. And I remember being like, fuck yeah, you just picked a fight with the baddest motherfuckers and we're going to fuck your shit up. You know, but I was an idiot fucking, you know, kid. But if I, I, I fell for it completely. Um, Everybody did. You know, but it was just like, that's, that's kind of how it is when you're hurt and you feel like you got hit and they killed our people. Well, we're going to fucking kill your people, motherfucker. But then you kind of realized, and this is what like Ron Paul taught me is it's like, yeah, okay, you know that impulse that you just had? Exactly. That's what they feel. So it's like the same way that you went, you kill us, motherfucker, we're going to kill your fucking people. They go, that's, that's it. That's the same exact thing that the fucking terrorists are feeling. That's the same thing their side's feeling. That they're like, oh yeah, you come here and bomb our fucking bi- village? We're going to kill your fucking people, you know? And you realize it's kind of like that's the whole fucking cycle. And it's like... I don't know. It's like, I, you know, I remember literally saying this when I was arguing with uh, Essie Cup and them on her show where they'd be like the, like an attack, 
even like the littler ones. I remember there was one where like a New York guy, uh, some some Muslim guy in New York, like hit people with his car, and he was like said he was part of ISIS or something. I don't even know how connected he was. And they're like, uh, they're all like, well, don't we have to do something about this? I mean, don't we have to go bomb, you know, Syria or do something about this? And you're like, right. You just got hit, and now you feel like we have to do something. But what's something? Blow shit up, right? Yeah. It's not just like something, like give a speech. You're saying we got to blow shit up over this. It's like, all right. Well, maybe that's their perspective too. And also, once you blow shit up, people want to blow shit up back. Yeah, that's and now you're just continuing this. Oh. And so like, oh, we got to fight him over there so we don't fight him over here. But you're like, well, maybe that actually ensures that we have to fight him over here. And isn't it wild that during this most chaotic of times in our history, if we think about the we think about the future of the world, we think about the fu- the possible possibility of war. It's escalated, and we have the craziest situation as a president and a vice yeah. president. It's the thing is wild. Like the only options we have, or from the right or the left, we're like, what the fuck? This is it? Like this is all that's left? It's like going to the supermarket during the pandemic, and there's nothing on the shelves. Yeah, You're like, oh my god. All that's here is a Trump and a Biden. We're gonna that's eat all we pickles. have. Like really? All <laughs> right. We're gonna eat a jar of mayonnaise and pickles. Oh my god! That's all that's here. And it's and the thing about it that's kind of crazy is that it's like it is so entertaining, even right. though you kind of know it's a disaster. Like I remember when Trump announced he was running again, it was literally like my exact. I was like, this is so bad for the country. God damn, this is gonna be fun. Like all in one thought, like God damn, this is gonna be funny as shit. Like I, it definitely was that. It definitely was funny. But no, but God I'm saying 24 it. is gonna be funny. Like yeah. it's just, but it's uh, it's bad. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully there's like more. I, I really hope that um, that Robert Kennedy Jr.'s campaign like has some impact and like takes off. I hope more good people run. But how could he possibly win? Well, I mean, he's probably not if, gonna win. If there, I mean, uh, right? So like, all he's doing is getting the message out getting the message out but i don't i think that's that's valuable you know i think that's very valuable and i also think things like that can like it 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 can like check the establishment a little bit if they're like whoa a lot of people like what these this guy's saying maybe we can't get away with this right now maybe we can't get away with that like there have been examples of that before where that happens they they try to do something and they realize this is going to be too like, too many people are going to be upset about this. Yeah, wasn't there talk during the Obama administration about some sort of regulation of the internet? Yeah, the SOPA, built the SOPA and the PIPA. There were like these proposals that were like real deal going to regulate the internet, not like big tech censorship shit. Like really, the government was going to regulate the internet. I, I, I'm telling you, Joe, they'd have shut your show down if that shit had passed. Hundred percent. If SOPA had passed, there's no way your uh, podcast goes through the pandemic. No way. There's no way you're allowed to have dissident uh, doctors and scientists on to give like their point of view on how the whole every policy is wrong. They just wouldn't have allowed it. No. And so and and so that didn't happen. We're still like in the game with a fighting shot because enough people, you know, got furious about that. And look, I, I should be to be fair. There was also corporate help with that. Like back then, a lot of the tech companies were against it. Because they were still like they weren't in bed with the government as much back then, and there was like I believe Google was really against it, and so they helped push kind of that message. So I do think also, like 
we're going to need a mass awakening in this country, but we're also going to need like powerful people. This is like what you see what's really encouraging with with Elon Musk buying Twitter is you kind of see that like, yeah, that's necessary too. You got to have like a badass billionaire right. who's like on board with this, right. who can actually do something about it. Because he's so valuable. Yeah. Yeah. That move, I know that pissed a lot of people off. There's a lot of people that are just missing the fucking point, man. They're mad that questionable people are allowed to be on it. Listen, the fucking, all sorts of questionable people are already on there. Yeah. The Taliban's on Twitter. The the CCP's on Twitter. Joe Biden. There's, yeah. All types of bad people. There's there's always been people, like, there's always been people on Twitter. Yes, yes, and, and come on, it's like, it's also like, you kind of just like miss... You know, like, don't just don't get it twisted. It's like, again, like when it's like what I try to say with the Ukraine thing. It's like, look, if the people who didn't have anything to say over what happened in Yemen over the last like seven years are really upset about the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, it's like, just don't be a fucking mark. Right. Like, see what's going on here. I'm not saying you can't be upset over the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, but I'm just saying recognize what they are doing. They don't really care about the humanitarian crisis. They're using this. They're they're manipulating you. And in the same sense, don't think the people who are like all for big tech don't look. You may really hate if there's like a neo-Nazi or something like that, like on Twitter or something, you know. Yeah. OK, I get it. I get where you hate that. But understand why they hate it. Yeah. They don't hate it because of that. Like, they don't care about that. They, they got no problem sending weapons to the neo-Nazis in Ukraine, which, by the way, we haven't touched on that, but there's some real deal ones uh, in there. But my point is, it's not that they hate neo-Nazis. They hate dissidents, okay? So you might find one example of a dissident who we all agree is a real bad guy or something like that, but they're not shutting down people like Judd for that. They're shutting down Alex Berenson for yeah. making data-driven arguments about why the COVID policies are wrong. Yeah, guys guy used who to they, write for the New York Times. Yes. Yeah. That's who they're going after. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like like asking him to be removed. Yeah. What are you doing about it? And it's always in like coded kind of mafioso yeah, you know, terms. Talk. Like, yeah, I didn't technically say you, sh you should kick yeah. Alex Berenson off. I just went, what's, what's up with this Berenson character? Yeah. This? There's, he has a lawsuit now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, didn't he win his lawsuit against Twitter originally, yes. against the old but Twitter regime? But now he has one against the Biden administration. That's real interesting. Yeah. Good for I, him. I think he wants to find out what was said. He wants to find out what, what did you do? Like what the internal discussions were there? Right. You guys are trying to remove my First Amendment rights. Yeah. And it was data-driven stuff that he was talking about. You're, you're trying to silence a journalist. But that's also, you realize that it's kind of like, that's why it just all has to be protected. You can't silence like, journalists, but, but, man. But it's also why it's, it's like, even if he wasn't making data-driven arguments... He should have a right to make the arguments. You know what I'm saying? Like, even if even if it's not like you have to protect even the dangerous speech. Otherwise, you have no leg to stand on. So, yes. like anything short of incitement of violence or some type of criminal activity or something like that. But you have to like it's like otherwise you have this slippery slope. And it's it's amazing how quickly it happened. Right. Like you remember when that happened with Alex Jones. Mm -hmm. So like not that long ago that it was like, oh, all of the companies colluded together to all kick him off and silence him at once. And then everyone goes like, yeah, but it's just Alex Jones, you know? And yeah. then like before you know it, oh, it's not just Alex Jones. No, it's going to keep going. It's it's a thing that feeds off of removing people that you disagree with. And this is why Elon Musk pisses them off so much. It's the same reason why Donald Trump pisses them off so much. It's almost like he interrupted the inevitability 
of them winning. Yeah. You know how like progressives will say, um, you're gonna be on the wrong side of history? Yes. Which is like a really presumptuous thing if you think about it. Like you're saying you already know how history is written and that you are the right side of it. Yeah. But that kind of is their worldview. That it's like, look, we're going in this direction and that's the correct direction. And yeah. what's gonna happen next is Hillary Clinton's gonna be president, you see? That's the next step. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, this wasn't supposed to happen. Trump right. was not supposed to be here. And then the same thing, it was like, we're going in the direction of content moderation and you know, cracking down on misinformation, whatever their euphemisms Removing for it are. Removing people you disagree with. Yes. And then all of a sudden, Elon Musk, you're like, wait, what? Am I, what? Yeah. The richest man in the world had $44 billion to burn, and he yeah. just bought Twitter? <laughs> and it's like, and, and you know, so you could criticize him. He, it's, Twitter hasn't been perfect since he took it over. There's like, you know, it could always be better or whatever, but um, but it's pretty awesome that he did this. It's pretty awesome. The um, getting away with uh, eliminating verification is weird. Like it, it veri- was, it's strange because like that seems to, look if you, if regular people want to get verified and you, there's a fee for that, that makes sense. Okay, just it, it pays for the site, but if and especially for people that are addicted to it and they're on it all day long anyway, like just give them some money, but. For celebrities and like musicians and people and you know like that there could be someone impersonating them, like why don't you just give them their check? Yeah, it, it makes it work better for all, all of us. And and it, it does add to confusion a little yeah, I don't bit. Need confusion. Like when when uh, Don Lemon announced that he uh, was fired from CNN, there was no check mark next to his name, and I'm like I'm like oh, this is I thought I go ah oh, this is someone trolling like you know what I mean. So that's a little bit confusing. That's I do. That doesn't make sense to me. That I makes agree. The experience of using the app less good. I agree with that. Um, I love labeling state-funded media, state-funded media. I love seeing the reaction. So funny, the reaction of NPR. Yeah. Like, this is outrageous. Like, but it's true. Well, aren't they just 1% state-funded? No, it's actually much more than that because then they, like, they... They get it's like one percent is is directly funded by the state, and then they also take money from like local groups that have like collected taxpayer money and stuff like that. So it's it's actually more. Um, uh, uh, Crystal Ball um, did a thing on uh, on their oh. show, kind of breaking this down. Mm. So it's actually it's actually in reality it's more than one percent. But regardless, it do, they take taxpayer funded money. So like I think there's nothing wrong with labeling them that. And if taxpayers are forced to fund any amount of of a news organization, and then that news organization is going to turn around and say like we won't report on the Hunter Biden laptop, or we won't do this, or we won't, you know, it's a, their stuff during COVID was just god awful. I have no problem with them having a little label there, especially one that pisses them off. <laughs> I love that. Who did he label 69% state funded? Oh, I don't know. Was it the BBC? Maybe. Maybe Who he did. did. I, did I also love that he's <laughs> I love that he's having fun with it. Yeah. Like there's just something great about it. Oh, he's he's a billionaire troll. Yeah. He likes to troll people. The fucking one that he did with Bill Gates is my all-time favorite. When he had a photo of Bill, Bill Gates standing next to the emoji of a pregnant man. <laughs> and it said, if you want to lose a boner real quick. That is so crazy. Yep. Did Twitter label CBC's account? CBC, okay. 69% government-funded media. Opinions were mixed on whether or not Elon Musk was, Musk was making a sex joke or just thumbing his nose at the Canadian Broadcast Corporation or both. So, yeah, it says 69% government-funded media. Well, is that the actual number? 
I don't know. I think Did uh, you see this happened though during it too. There were Chinese journalists that had that label on their account, and oh, that was removed. Wow! Mm, Twitter right. drops government-funded label on media accounts, including in China. Well, he yeah, no, I know he dropped it on the ones he dropped it on um on NPR too. I think in a way, he was just fucking with them for a little while, and then he's like, "All right, we're not actually." You got to realize, ladies and gentlemen, that oppose him. This is so much better than the alternative because the alternative is a system like china has where it's a state-controlled system like their their social media is monitored like people go to jail for dissenting like well, it's very dangerous well look i mean if you it's a good time to show you this video video shows how china is using ai in their schools again so this is from an instagram account that is popular what they show is like an edited video. I don't know how accurate all this is though, but China know exactly when someone isn't paying attention. These headbands measure each student's level of concentration. Oh my the information God. is then directly sent to the teacher's computer and to parents. Classrooms have robots that analyze students' health and engagement levels. Students wear uniforms with chips that track their locations. There are even surveillance cameras that monitor how often students check their phones or yawn during classes. But schools say it wasn't hard for them getting parental consent to enroll kids into what is one of the world's largest experiments in AI education. A program that's supposed to boost students' grades while also feeding powerful algorithms. That's about it. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa, they're gonna kill us. Well, <laughs> they're gonna dominate. But they're gonna know, sometimes dominate. there's. I just. I'm always a little bit skeptical of some of these things because you're kind of like, okay, is this just like one random school is doing it this way in China, and it's like a little experiment? Because I have heard people like say that, like, um, like I've heard people um, who like run businesses in China. Uh, like I, I heard a podcast with this one guy who lived there uh, or still lives there in China. And he was like, I don't know what everyone's talking about with this credit, uh, social credit score. He goes, I've never heard of it. It's never affected me. I don't have a social credit score. You know, and I almost like mm. wonder, like sometimes we, we do get a lot of propaganda um, about China because there's also a whole bunch of people like who are real hawkish toward them. So I always try to kind of be skeptical of some of this. No doubt the CCP is really creepy. You know what I mean? And they're definitely like an authoritarian fucked up. Uh, government. They're a dictatorship. But, yes. A one-party dictatorship, for sure. And when you've got something like that, that's how you run it. Yeah. But there were, like, um, like that dude, uh, Adrian Zen, who was, like, he was, like, putting out a lot of the stuff about the, the Uyghur genocide. Mm -hmm. And he was, like, drastically like misrepresenting what's happening. And he actually, I believe he apologized for it. But he just got called out, like, like literally, like, just doing bad math. Like, oh, you didn't carry the one here, motherfucker. It's 10 times less than what you're saying. And it's not, like, the evidence for that is not nearly what they kind of suggested. It's it's more seems like, oh, yeah, China's a real authoritarian government, and they limit how many people, every, how many children everyone can have. And it's, okay, they don't have the one, chi uh, the one you know, child policy anymore. Now you're allowed three or whatever. But, yeah. like, it's, it's like it wasn't quite, like, the story that was originally put out there. So I just always get worried about Uyghur that. Is there a Uyghur Muslim genocide? Like, what? I, I have not seen. Um, a German scholar named Adrian Zenz has recently stood out on the anti-China stage with his reports accusing China of detaining Uyghurs and other minority groups or imposing sterilization on ethnic minorities in its, how do you say that? 
Xinjiang region. I believe that's right. Xinjiang, Xinjiang region. Zenz has been welcomed by the U.S. and Western media as a leading expert on Xinjiang. He was uh, quoted by um, Pompeo uh, mm. when Pompeo declared that they were committing a genocide. Hmm. Uh, okay, and so what does it say? Full of lies, far-fetched assumptions, and baseless accusations. Hmm. Um, there's, uh, if... Yeah, if you go, uh, they, they did a good piece on this. If you go to uh, antiwar.com, which I recommend everyone do every day, uh, and just search Adrian Zenz there, they did a really good piece breaking down like how his, it's like straight up like his math is wrong. It's not even like oh, there's an argument about this. It's like, no, oh. look, he's got these numbers completely wrong. So it's just people get real carried away with this shit. And I'm, my biggest concern is just that like after this whole stand in Ukraine, Taiwan is going to fucking be next. And it's like, oh, so now we're going to be flirting with a nuclear confrontation with Russia and China. So that's like my biggest concern in all of this. I do, uh, I do agree, though, that the whole, like, AI in the classroom and all this shit is creepy as fuck. Bro, if they I don't want it around my kids. nationwide, first of all, the problem would be it would work. Yeah. And kids would get way better. Because you'd make yeah. them work. Yeah. You'd force them. Like, you'd, you'd hold them accountable. There wouldn't be any hiding. It, it'd but work also, for that. It would also be terrible for getting people to recognize that figures of authority should be questioned. You're not going to develop any of that. You're, you're going to have to adhere very strictly to these rules. Yeah. So I think part of going through school is learning that different people are more or less effective at communicating, that you want to pay attention to them more or less, that the, the there's something, there's an education you're getting in a shitty class, believe it or not. You're getting yeah. an education on what happens in a shitty class, <laughs> about how much you hate it and how much it sucks and how stupid your teacher is yeah. and how disinterested they are in the subject that they're teaching you and how they expect total compliance and they don't understand human emotions and the way people think and behave. That's, a, that's an education, too. Like Going through bad schools gave me a great view on what some, poten some adults are potentially like. I learned a lot from really awful teachers about what I don't want to be in this world. Yeah, man, think about how much interaction you have as a child with adults, right? You have your parents and you have your friend's parents. And then very rarely are you alone with strangers, except when you go to school. And then you go to school and you get sent by the least motivated I mean, sent to the least motivated people, oftentimes, mm -hmm. people that aren't happy to be there. They don't enjoy it, especially if it's a bad neighborhood. It's a sketchy job to begin with. You might get jumped by some kids. <sighs> and these people are just browbeaten, and they get in there, and they don't even want to be there. And these are responsible for showing your children, for most of the day, what an adult is like. Yeah. And if that kid doesn't have a strong figure at home... If that kid doesn't have someone at home that's kind and, and generous and works hard and is very engaged in them with their life, then they think that that's what adults are like. And has been for, since the beginning. Yeah. You know, it's kind of important that they had that already for years before they, they go to school. But you know? th that's still better than robots. Yeah. That's I, still better I than don't, I mean, full I want, compliance. Yeah, I want my kids to develop like uh, 
discipline and, and a work ethic, and I want like all of that stuff. But I don't want them to do it because the robots watching them. Right. I want it to do. I want them to live and but be a human, the thing, and then man. be convinced that like, oh, it's really awesome to develop these things because life's better that way. But there's also something that we have to take into consideration that there's all there's a wide spectrum of things that people are interested in, and oftentimes when kids are bored in class, their imagination is running wild, and they'll start thinking about what they want to do with their life. They'll start thinking about things through boredom. But Joe, if we just give them this pill, ah, they'll pay attention. I know. <laughs> Thank God that shit wasn't around when I was a kid. Oh my God, I would have been medicated for sure. If I, I had uh, like, like parents who couldn't handle it. I got uh, medic, so I, I'm lucky in a sense, but I got diagnosed with ADD and they prescribed me Ritalin. And uh, I think my mother begrudgingly put me on it for a week. And I was just fucking, I was just a little kid tweaking out on fucking Ritalin, and I wouldn't eat or sleep. Oh and so God. she took me off it right away. And she was like, no, fuck it, we're not doing this. Oof. Um, and then I never did. Um, thank God I got off it. Yeah. So you really don't, I mean, like I've done Adderall like as an adult, you know what I mean? And you're like, yo, this is a serious drug, man. To just be giving this to children is really insane. Because he's a little boy who wants to run around? Like, yeah. Let him run around more. I yeah, don't know. It's, it's wild that different ways of thinking about life and different things being interested in whether or not you can pay attention can be a disease. Like if you can't pay attention to things, like we, we think there's something wrong with the way your mind works. But meanwhile, those kids who can't pay attention to things, watch them play a fucking video game. Watch them play World of Warcraft. Watch them p play whatever the fuck the kids play today. What do they play? What's the, <laughs> what's the big one? Yeah, one of those fucking things. They, these motherfuckers can play that shit all day long and be yeah. fully locked in. How come? Because it's interesting. Because they're kids. Kids are bored as fuck. And if they, they haven't been interested in math previously and then they're behind and then they're trying to pay attention in class. I remember just struggling through math because I was so dumb. I was like, are there calculators? And they're like, yes. I do we have like basically an unlimited supply of batteries? And they're like, yes. I'm like, well, yeah. I'm out. <laughs> like, well, I'll figure all this shit out with a yeah, calculator. Man. I'm not learning how to do that. But that was the the stupidest way to think. But as a kid, that left me thinking about other stuff. Like I was bored, and because of bored, I would scribble on my notebook. I would draw. I would think about things. You know the the history of school, where it comes from. The term school, it comes from uh, Prussia. As they, they were the first ones to invent school. And this is the Prussian system is what we adopted in America. The Prussians were the geographical and cultural precursor to the Nazis. Um, and the reason they did it was because they had this uh, problem that um, their conscripted armies would not fight. Like they'd get out there and you'd, they'd draft these people into an army and tell them to go to war and they'd like piss themselves and run away. And they were like, what are we going to do about this? And so they were like, we got to get them at a young age uh, and really like indoctrinate them toward like being subservient to the state. Wow. And Horace Mann, who's considered, you know, the, the godfather of education in, in America, he literally said, I think it was in the late 1800s, he literally said, we're adopting the Prussian model. And he was like, but, you know, surely if this model can be used to support like Prussian, you know, uh, like authoritarianism, it can also be used to support 
republicanism of America, you know, and like, oh, support the great republic. And it's literally, I mean, that is the first thing they would do at schools is like, have you pledge allegiance to your government, you know? And um, that's why I do think it's interesting when a lot of these, uh, you know, like right winger types today, they'll be like, oh my God, they're propagandizing these kids in school. And I, I will grant that I do find the latest um, insane gender sexualization of kids to be particularly troubling. It's not like it's a new thing that they're propagandizing kids in school. In fact, that's kind of what the whole thing was set up for. And it's like, it's, it's you know, like my kids are like, they're, I got little, little kids, but like even just from like, like, like my four year old, man, it's just like the state of these little kids. They're so magical and amazing. And all they want, like they have this amazing passion for life that's built into them. All my four-year-old ever wants to do is ask me why. Like, that's all she wants to do is understand how things work. She wants me to explain them to her. She wants to help. You know what I mean? Like, everything you can think of, she wants to do a little task and then say, I helped. You know, like, mom baked muffins and I helped. I stirred. Like, they want so badly to know things and participate in the adult world. And then we're like, oh, okay, well, what we're going to do with you for the next uh, 14 years is send you to go sit in a row of desks and memorize and regurgitate information that an authority figure hands to you. It's just horrible. You're like, that's the best we could come up with? What they did in the 1800s in Prussia? That's what you've got for me? And we're so locked into this idea that that's how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like they can't learn how to read and write and learn something about history and math in a different way that's like better. I'm not saying I have the answer to it. It's just like someone smarter than me should. Well, the problem is people are busy and you don't have enough time to invest in your kids' education, restructuring it. A lot of people yeah. don't at least. Yeah. You know, that's the thing about it is you just kind of, what's the best school in my area? Yeah. You know, you fall into that. And of course, because the schools are, you know, largely monopolized by the government, yeah. there's also like there's not that much ability to change things and try new things and try, you know. I think there's a really important factor that goes on with schools, though. It's uh, the, these kids getting together and recognizing that these teachers are idiots. <laughs> it's like when you have a conversation with your kids as they get older, they're going to tell you about some idiot teachers, and that these conversations are hilarious. Oh, I got I got I to witness some in California. Because my daughter during the pandemic was on Zoom, so she'd have to do Zoom school. Okay. And so, or whatever it was, you know, they had right. a streaming service they used. And so I, I get to sit in a room with her while she was doing Zooms and just to see how disinterested this teacher was. How about how unbelievably boring it was to listen to the stuff that she had to say? And there's no engagement, no, no thought of the fact that these are kids. And yeah. a lot of these people don't have kids, and they don't have kids that age either. Which is like, or they're not accustomed to being like kids. Don't want to fucking pay attention. You got to make it fun. If you don't make it fun, they don't want to do it. They don't want to do it. But that's normal and that's healthy. You want people to do things and have fun. You want ideally your life should be you doing something you enjoy. Yeah. We got to figure out what you enjoy, Bob, and we got to drill it into you, Sally. We're gonna. Will you find what what you gravitate towards? Let's encourage that. Yeah, one hundred percent, man. And like, there's, you know, like, and I knew, like, I I had a few great teachers, like in my life, but like three, you know, like they're, they're the they're the minority, and then there were tons of awful teachers, just tons. And here's the question, man: like, what creates an artist? Like, most people, 
if they had artistic talent in some way, shape, or form, they'd probably want to do that because it's a fun thing to do. There's something exciting about creating things. Well, where does that come from? Is that in all of us, but it's just discouraged so hard in some people and through this sort of rigid adherence to whatever is in control, whatever, whatever power structure, whatever authority figure. Is that, does that squash it in so many people that only a few of tortured childhoods get out? And maybe we associate creativity and we associate brilliant art with, with people with tortured childhoods yeah. for all the wrong reasons. Do you ever hear uh, that, I've always loved this quote so much, but someone asked uh, Jerry Seinfeld, or they were like, when you were a kid, were you like the funny one in your group of friends? And he went, we were all funny. And then everyone else got jobs. Wow. You know, and it's kind of yeah. like that. It, like there is something <laughs> to that, man. Like, what do you mean? We were all hilarious. Yeah. I just kept being hilarious. Yeah. They all decided to stop at some point. Yeah. I'm like, I do. I don't think everyone it like could be an artist. There are some people who are wired for like different things. There are some people who are like, like this dude's a chemist or this dude's like a computer yes. programmer and he was made to be that. Yes. Like he's, he had like a real propensity toward that. But I think there's no question a lot of people have that squashed. A lot of people, yes. like, you know, I've, yeah. I've known people like that who are Those like- Those are the most bitter yeah. people. They're the most bitter people. What's well, sad. There's something tragic about that. You know, the guys that wanted to be in a band, but it just didn't work out. Or just didn't, it didn't have the balls to, like, go yeah. for it and then got a job and then had a family. Well, now you got a family. You can't leave this job now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you got, and yeah, that's, there's something so tragic about that, man. It's weird. You know, it's a, it's a sad person to be around. Someone who just, it didn't. They didn't chase their dream or they didn't have the encouragement or the, they didn't have the um, confidence. They didn't have the circumstances. They had bad circumstances that befell them. Yeah. Well, if you're, if you're like young and you're, you're listening to this, like keep that in mind. I remember, I remember Jordan Peterson said once, I think it might've been on, on with you. I can't remember. Maybe it wasn't, but he said something about like, you know, there's people who are like in a job that they hate or in a career that they hate and they'll think about like, well, I can't like. I can't leave and pursue something else because what about all the risks of doing that? Yeah. And you're like, yeah, what about the risks of not? Yeah. What about the risks of doing something that makes you miserable for the rest of your life? Because yeah. that seems like a, a risk worth considering, you know? I was really lucky in having no stability when I was young, which doesn't make sense if you think about it because you want to provide your children with as much stability as possible. But I was really lucky that I didn't. Because I didn't believe in like normal systems, like I didn't believe in them. I'd never that they they seemed alien to me. Like the idea of getting a job in an office was like so crazy. I never even considered it. I've never had an office job ever. Even when I had other jobs, I took these weird alternative jobs. Like I did construction or I drove limos. I did stuff that like anybody could do. Like you didn't need. There's no barrier to entry. Like it was. Uh, Working in an office to me seemed like madness. Like to sit in, I for sure have ADHD or whatever the fuck yeah, it is, yeah. but it works for regular <laughs> life. Like if you have a, just a life you enjoy, yeah. it's actually beneficial. But this idea of sitting and doing a, a job all day that I was completely unemotionally attached to, not creatively attached to, I couldn't do it. But if I had to do some stuff for money that I knew was temporary, I could do that. 
That's easy. Deliver newspapers, fine. That's just stuff I'm doing. And you do something money. kind of physical where you're like doing something. It's, it's, a, it's just a little fine. bit I'm of a doing different something thing. For money, it's not a job. Right. It's right. Not, I'm not gonna move my way up the corporate ladder. Are right. you fucking crazy? Like, that yeah. was, it was so impossible for me. I was just programmed so different. No, I've, I'm well aware of it in myself too. Where there'll be things sometimes that like um, something like. Even like um, like shopping, like clothes shopping or something like that. If it's like going slow, I'm like I've never been so miserable in my entire <laughs> life. I don't know why this is so excruciatingly <laughs> painful. I have no interest. I don't freaking care. You're like so let's bored. go. I'm so bored. So bored. But if I'm doing the things that I'm passionate about, I could focus on that forever, like yeah. limitlessly. You know, um, that's where but, marijuana comes in. Because marijuana and shopping, it's a totally different experience. Then you're just having fun, yes. you're relaxed, and just walking around. You could walk around well, with the slowest shopper ever and just make fun of everything that happens. Well, dude, I mean, I, I started smoking pot, like, very young in life, like 14 maybe, and I became, like, an everyday smoker very quickly. And I think there was something to that connection, that the things that were so boring and miserable to me in life were like, oh, now this is fun. Like, this is not that anymore. It's like, oh, look, I found the cure for Dude, this. Dude, 100%. That was my entire time of filming Fear Factor. <laughs> the, the entire fucking every episode of every season except the first four episodes. The yeah. first four episodes I did sober, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and then once I started getting high, I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I could see where that would change the experience. Oh, my God, it was a much better experience. It was yeah. much better. It was like night and day. I was like, oh, yeah, this is an amazing job. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, I don't recommend other 14-year-olds get no, high all the time. There, was, no. uh, there, there were problems with it and it wasn't for the best but uh i was very fortunate that i was during my entire uh, like from high school age to like the time i started doing stand-up i didn't party at all like very very rarely because i was competing so because of that i was always scared to lose and i was always scared that i, I would lose because I, I had gotten drunk and then i was hung over and, and you're not talking about losing a basketball game you're talking yeah. about getting kicked in the face and yeah, knocked unconscious not, yeah, yeah. I, it's not fun you don't want that to happen to you. So I, I was obsessed with not getting kicked in the face, but kicking people in the face. And so if like not getting drunk was like the solution to a lot of those problems. And it's also I just knew that there was a lot of kids that I was friends with at the time. I was You took the opposite of the John yeah. Jones approach? Well Which John is, Jones is so goddamn talented, <laughs> he could dominate while partying. Was that on it's here when he said thing. that? Yeah. Well, to you? Yeah. That he said he would do it? <laughs> yeah. So he had an excuse in his mind? Yeah, in case he lost and he still won. He still beat everybody. He beat people with like minimal training, man. He was so fucking good. John's so good, and he comes from a family of super athletes. Like yeah. both of his brothers are in the NFL. I mean, it's just, it's just whew, kissed by God. You Dude, know? You're just and like, that, there's people like that, man. There's Roy Jones Juniors and Mike Tyson's, and they have all the talent in the world and the athletic ability, but they're also kissed by God. Yeah, there's just great. People. But John Jones fought Cyril Gaon, and you're just like. I guess you could have just always been fighting heavyweights this whole 100%, time, man. Like he you just, been. yeah, you just probably could have always done this. And it's just like it's not even like a a competition, even about you're like, there's not even a next fight that I'm dying to see. Yeah, because I'm just kind of like, I mean, he's just there's no one. John's there's no so one who's gonna fuck good. with him. He's so good. He's the goat. I mean, if you gonna you gonna have a goat. I don't think you can argue that John's not the GOAT. I think the argument really is, who are the greats? 
because there's you it's so subjective if Nurmagomedov was better than John Jones it's so what do you did you like yeah, longevity yeah, yeah. No, I see you what like you're total saying. dominance cuz in total dominance Nurmagomedov is the goat total dominance right. man just smashes everybody nobody had a chance do you understand how crazy it is to watch a guy storm through an entire division with m- masters like Justin Gaethje a master of destruction yeah. and no one has a chance yeah. Conor McGregor master of destruction no one has a chance this motherfucker he gets everybody there's an argument that he's the goat there's an argument that Mighty Mouse is the greatest expression of martial arts in the history of combat sports I would make that argument and yeah. in his prime, he's the greatest expression. It's slamming on, guys into arm bars and that crazy on shit. Elite on elite athletes, yeah. and he's a ghost. He's standing right in front of him. He's tagging him, and he's a ghost. His footwork what, his, is his magical. His last fight, where he won the uh, yes. the belt back, that knockout was insane. And he it like was a followed him of what the guy did yeah. to him. Yeah, the way he timed it oh. as he's following him to the cage, it's just like insane shit that that Masterful. guy does. And he's in his like what is he thirty six? How old is Mighty Mouse? Let's find out how old yeah. Mighty Mouse is. Because for the 125-pound division to be competing at a very high level in, in, in a natural yeah. athlete in his 30s, he's 36? Yes. Uh-huh. Recall. There you go. They say marijuana kills your recall. That's bullshit. <laughs> Confuses a little. It's a little cloudy well, sometimes. How did he know Mighty Mouse was 36 then? This, the, that guy, when he was in his prime, like when he beat Cejudo the first time, when he stopped him in the first round, he was the ultimate expression. I forgot expression. about that. They oh need him to God. the body, right? Oh, my God. Beat him up. That's right. And Dude. it was real close. The Cejudo second fight was very close. Dude, I w- went behind Mighty Mouse once when he was behind backstage at the UFC, and I just grabbed him to hug him, just to play, just to play. He's my friend. <laughs> I go to hug him, and he turns and just to fuck with me, hits me in the body, touches me, the most gentle touch, with two knees so fast that I couldn't believe they actually moved that quickly. It was yeah. just... It, it just he went just did that to me. I was like, oh my goodness. Yeah, he was, he is an unreal talent, dude. Unreal. When, no, when he's he got an argument Cejudo with those knees to the body. I remember watching that going. I don't think I've ever seen anybody land a knee to the body more precisely. It's a shame it that he uh, magic the Cejudo. It's a shame that he left the UFC when he did and didn't get like like the third fight. With Cejudo, a rubber match mm. there, I think would have been so huge. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like he never got the fight that had like that type of height behind I believe, him. I believe you're correct. It yeah. was just like kind of like hardcore fans knew, like they were like, "Yo, this guy's like unbelievable. unbelievable. Like he's the best." But I think he just didn't quite have the moment. There was also talk of him moving up and fighting T.J. Dillashaw, and I think there was like a contractual dispute or something like that didn't happen. But it's a shame that he didn't get one of those like huge moments because even when he beat Cejudo the first time. He wasn't like that big of a name yet, right? Like people didn't know like who that was. Whereas like, the th- by the third fight, it would have been like a huge thing, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and then uh, GSP also is in the conversation. 100%. He's got to have an argument. Yeah, he's in the conversation for, for sure. The dominance of the welterweight division, but and the then- fact that he beat everyone he ever faced. Uh, and came back and won the middleweight mm-hmm. title after a, a leave. That's hard yeah. to not. Uh, that's hard to not consider him there. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, I mean, especially how brilliantly he handled it. He just like beat Bisping and said, "I'm done." I do Give think up the belt. All of this is kind of subjective, like you said. It's like, what do you like? But I would say that for me, John Jones has the strongest argument because he dominated multiple generations of fighters. Mm-hmm. Like he dominated the Shogun Rampage, mm-hmm. uh, Machida generation of fighters then he dominated um 
what was it? Gustafson. Uh, the, the Gustafson well, Cormier. The first, the first fight's the most impressive because he didn't train for it. Yeah. That's just the most impressive thing is that John Jones pulls out the first fight in the later rounds. He wins the decision by dominating the later rounds in a fight that he didn't train. And we had never seen him in a dog fight right. before at that right. point. You were like, sometimes there are these guys. I remember thinking the same thing with uh, Israel Adesanya when he fought Kelvin uh, Gaslam. Whereas mm. all we had seen from him was just like Domination. dominating everybody. Yeah. And so there's something, there's kind of a question mark a little bit with that where you don't know, you know, some people like when the going gets tough kind of like look for a way out. And I remember, if you remember in that fight in the fourth round, Kelvin fucked him up in that fourth round. He mm -hmm. really hurt him and he was busted up. And you remember before the fifth round starts is that he looks at him and he's like, I'm prepared to die for this. He said and then, it. And then he went out and dominated the fifth yeah. round and you were like, oh, okay. This dude's special. He's not just like a talent that can dominate people, but he's also like a real fighter. He's like, so special that he chose to fight Pajera for the fourth time after getting knocked out. And he was getting fucked up in that fight two. too. He was, he was he, getting fucked up. His leg was getting fucked got, up. His leg was getting chewed up and, and he was cornered and, and he was he taking was a blitz. about it after the fight. He was yeah. like, not again. He's getting yeah. me again. Because he was getting him again with the same goddamn thing. That guy is so clever. Here he goes. He says, I'm prepared to die. I have no problem. I'm prepared to die. And look how fucked up he is. Like, he was yeah. really beat up, man. I'm prepared to. He said, I'm prepared to die. I'm prepared to. Holy yeah. shit. Dude, Holy I did like, shit, dude. I did like at the end of it, though. Uh, not knocking him. I'm just singing his praises. He's the greatest. But at the end of the, the fight, he's like, that's it. He goes, we're not fighting again. He goes, I don't, I don't keep score. I end score or whatever. You're like... I get where you're coming from on that yeah. one. You're like, Jesus because Christ. you should really move up. You should move up and go yeah, fight move a different up to way. Yeah, like, fella. Get the fuck out of here. It's just but, pretty. It's pretty funny to be three and one and go. I think we've all seen enough of this. Well, like, I, I don't, don't think he's three and one. I think he won the first fight. Oh the yeah, that's right. It was a bad fight. It was a bad decision. Well, look, I believe you can say this. And he got saved in the second kickboxing fight. Adesanya right. had him on skates. Right. He was in real trouble. And he and was got a standing eight count, which is huge. If especially you look at the first round of the first MMA fight. And he dropped. Yeah, yeah. Drops him in the end of the first round. Now imagine if or he, he dropped him. He the, rocked him. I don't know if he well, actually he fell. Him. You're yeah, right. yeah. He, I don't know if he, his hand touched the ground. I think he just rocked him. You're right. Um, but he rocks him in a very similar manner to when he finishes him off in the second fight. Right. Imagine if that had taken place and the referee had stood in and gave him a standing gate count. Pajeda is a monster. He yeah. recovers quickly. Yep. Like he can get cracked, and some there's some speculation that some of that has to do with the fact that he's cutting so much weight. Um, Michael Bisping, I believe, um, uh, I believe it was, uh, there was a few other fighters. Oh, uh, I think it was Sugar Sean O'Malley. Was, we're talking about this insane weight cut that this guy makes to get down to 185 pounds and the fact that that could affect his ability to absorb punishment, very possibly. But imagine a, a scenario where he gets rocked like that, but then you give him eight whole seconds to recover. And you're, it's the, the referee's doing it like one, two, three. Like they don't want him to lose. Right, and so they give him this little ability to recover, and he survives, and then he winds up winning and knocking yeah. out Pahit, or knocking out Adesanya in this spectacular fashion. Hits him with this monster left hook. But that's the thing about that guy. That's what's so terrifying about fighting him, and that's why Izzy's so special. That he's like, I can figure this motherfucker out. Well, I you also got to look at it like you know. There's almost like there's like a winner versus loser mentality to that. And I remember thinking of this going into that last fight where like, look, you could look at it and say, I, I was fighting my best fight and he still got me. 
You know what I mean? Or you could look at that and go, I had this guy. I was winning that fight until the fifth round. You know what I mean? The thing is, there's zero margin for error when you fight that dude. Zero. Like, you can't fuck up once. And if it's he, almost you got to crack him because like him saying that he he was going to get him early I think he kind of knew that you it, the punishment he puts on your legs it's so it's so sneaky how he does it man but he, he throws the best calf kicks in the fucking business man yeah he really does he's going to be a force he'll be a force at 205 I mean he's a real dangerous at guy at 205 I think. he's going to have a problem with real elite grapplers I think. Yeah, there's some big there's some big grapplers that that's a little bit of an issue, but it'll be kind of interesting to it'll see be how very he can interesting. do. But well, he's training with Glover, and Glover's one of the best grapplers that ever fought in the 205 pound division. Yep. So he's going to get amazing instruct. But we, when you saw the first Adesanya fight, when Izzy took his back, when Izzy was on top of him, you could imagine someone who's an elite grappler in that division, like having their way with him in those situations. Well, when Israel Adesanya moved up to 205. Uh, right. and um, fought uh, Blahovich. Uh, like that was the issue that he had with him. He was like, "Okay, I know what I can do to this guy, but he's bigger and stronger than Bo- than Izzy." Blahovich um, is huge. No, no, no. I'm saying, but Pohera is bigger yes. and stronger than yes. Izzy. So that it's it's a question. How Tell good you, can he get? That fight at 205 would be fucking insane. That's a real good Jan fight. Bohovic versus Alex Pajeda at 205 would be fucking bananas. Dude, that fight, him against Hill would be a great fight. Like, any of the matchups there would you, you be can, really you can good. You make any mistakes against Bohovic, and Bohovic yeah. can take it. Yep. That guy can take it. Holy shit, is he an animal. Yeah. No, he's And he's then you've good. got Ankalaev. Like, Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, man. And what's his name? And the champ is, uh, well, not the champ anymore, um... But uh, he's out for a few years, I think. Jamal right? Hill? No, 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 no. J- Jamal Hill is the champ now. Uh, what's his name? Who was was the champ, but didn't lose it? Uh, oh, shit! What was fucking the guy? Uh, ah, what's his name? He literally just got a big shoulder injury. Right? Oh, uh, Yuri Prohaska. Oh my God, I'm blanking. Too. Yeah, yeah. He. Uh, how did I not fucking <laughs> catch that? I'm, that's how good this fucking Ric Flair weed is. <laughs> that's hilarious. See, there, my memory sucks. Yeah, there you my go. Memory's well, you're great, one, and it sucks. One for two so far. Prohaska, do you know this? What happened with him? I know he fucked his shoulder up in a real awful way, right? Dude, he fucked his shoulder up so bad. The UFC surgeon said it was the worst shoulder injury uh. he's ever seen. This is what happened. His shoulder came out of place during training, and they yanked on it to put it back in and fucked it up. Jesus. Yeah. That sucks, that man. Sucks. Wally's champion of the Wally's world, Wally's the too. champion of the world. Wa- coming Jesus. off the most insane fight with Glover Teixeira. I mean, that was a fucking insane One fight. One of the best fights ever. The fact that he submitted Glover to win, he's so unusual. You watch his movements. Yeah, it's crazy. Everything is so different. It's so hard to prepare for this guy. Here, he's training again. So he'll do this. Like He's just fucking around. He's like loosening up, I think. Is that what he's saying he's doing? Yeah, yeah, I was just showing up what you're talking about on this all. Oh, but his movement when he fights is so unusual. So this is why they did this is why they like stripped the title right away because they well, were just he, like no, this he is gonna be relinquished the oh, he title. Because he was like, this is no, gonna be. He's the real deal, time. man. He's no, he's incredible. Deal. He relinquished the title. He decided that that injury was too spectacular, that he needed real time to recover. Um but what what's interesting about this is like shoulder injuries are notorious for being they repeat it's very hard like a a shoulder's a complicated joint you got to really rehabilitate that thing perfectly before you come back 
so many guys have come back from knee injuries and shoulder injuries too soon. Uh, Ed Shortfuse Herman, who just retired, he got his ACL reconstructed and in training, like getting back into it, blew it out again because it wasn't really recovered yet. You got to give yourself the right amount of time. You're yeah. an elite athlete. And so he was talking about getting back in there, I think in July. And I think that's all scrapped. But I think he was talking about getting back in there very quickly. He says he knows his body. But like, man, that's a complicated joint. Like, these guys that are surgeons today are the greatest that have ever lived. They can do amazing things with people's shoulders. But even TJ Dillashaw, he's had a shitload of surgeries, and his shoulders are fucked. That was awful seeing that in, that, uh, in that fight with Aljamain Sterling. Horrible. But TJ's shoulders have been fucked for a long time. He just compensated for it to the point where it all eventually just fell apart. Well, he looked real good in his fight before that. I yeah. mean, I don't know. I guess he said he had a lot of problems with it in uh, in that training camp. Well, in that think, fight, like, he looked really good before it, and Corey Sanhagen destroyed his knee. Yeah. Destroyed his knee yeah. in that exchange. Yeah. Like, his knee was fucked up, man. And so from that, he goes and wins that fight. He wins that decision. And now he's got fucked up shoulders. His, his shoulders are so bad. And he got surgery on them, but they basically said, like, you're not going to be able to fight again. Like, they, they just won't hold up. Like, it's been too much damage. And that's what I'm worried about when I hear people having a catastrophic shoulder injury and then saying, I'm going to get back in there as quickly as possible. Like, you know, be careful. Shoulder injuries, they're just like, they're a tough one. Knee, back. I mean, when people recover from, like, Aljamain Sterling recovers from a neck Surgery where they replace one of his discs yeah. with an artificial disc and goes on to retain the title. Yeah, like holy shit, man! Like you got an artificial disc in your neck and you're fighting. Like the stuff they can do today is wild. yeah, it's incredible. Shoulders do seem like the trickiest one though, and they seem like the ones that like you know it's weird. Like when you see people, I remember this from like basketball, like in in like high school and shit. Whereas there'd be someone who like their shoulder popped out, like they dislocated their shoulder, yeah. and then that just happens to them. Then that's yeah. just a thing that like regularly, like not like all the time, but y you always like know it could happen again. And like there's really like a, I don't know. That's the thing I want to recommend for shoulder health if people are interested in this. There's a, a product that I have no affiliation with other than I bought it. It's called Crossover Symmetry, and it's these bands. And they come in various weights, and you, you put them on a post or you can hang them on the wall or whatever. And you do a series of exercises, whether it's pulling them upwards or pulling them across or pulling them down, pulling them this way and that way. And it's all shoulder strengthening. And it really can help people. And it really can prevent injuries, too, if you do it on a regular basis, if you stick to it. you got to think of your shoulders as, like, something that you're protecting. You're not just, like, building it up. You should protect the joint. Like, that's what Knees Over Toes guy is really interested in. Like, his, right. his whole thing is, a, is about, like, strengthening all the muscles around your knee. And strengthening the muscles around your shoulder is so important, too. And so often when people are training in a thing, whether it's jiu-jitsu or Muay Thai or anything, you're only training doing that thing. And that thing can strengthen you, and it certainly will. But it would benefit you to doing things to prevent injuries and strengthening joints and strengthening the, the tissue around vulnerable areas in your body, whether it's your neck or your shoulders or your knees. It's very good. It's very important. Everybody should do it if you can. Well, I know who's happy right now is the people who run that company with those shoulder uh, oh, those those shoulder straps. There's a bunch of different – I mean, you, I like you don't... to think someone's listening live and they're like, yes! 
That's the, my thing. Well, the knees over toes guy has a great system that he does too. With just um, he uses uh, dumbbells and uh, d- different uh, external and internal wo- rotation exercises, and th- those are all very good. There's a bunch of different things you could do with with just dumbbells. There's a bunch of different exercises you can do that all are just low weight things that strengthen your shoulders. Another one that's great is club bells. I don't know if you ever used them before, but they're like it looks like a like a small bat that's made out of iron, and you do all these actually like the Iron Sheik used to do it with those big wooden ones. You ever seen no. those things? No. We do things like shield casting, where it's all you, you have this huh. this thing in your hand that's like a bat with and it's the weight is weird so you don't even need much weight like 15 pounds you can get a really good workout and you're you're holding these things out and you're doing all sorts of different exercises with these with these things you're swinging them you're swinging them overhead like look at that's the iron sheik doing it oh yeah those things are tremendous for shoulder strength wasn't enough a lot to of beat people. Hulk Hogan. <laughs> that guy was a beast, dude. In real life, he was yeah, an elite athlete, elite wrestler. Was he really? Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, elite wrestler for Iran, like legit. Oh, okay. That's where he wrestled, right? It wasn't fake, right? Because he, the, you never know with those people. Like with the the, the the the, he came from Iran, right? I mean, didn't lie about that, did he? Back then, you could just lie though. <laughs> there, was, there was no internet, dude. My favorite uh, wrestling story ever. The, my favorite storyline. Who did he wrestle for? We should give him his props because the Iron Sheik was the fucking man. <laughs> I'm 99% sure he wrestled for Iran, but he was like an elite wrestler. Well, when? So what yeah. year? Yeah. When did he wrestle for Iran? Probably 68. Oh, okay. So that's before the revolution. That's when we, uh, we liked the government. Look at him. Fucking animal. By the way, the CIA overthrew the Iranian government in 1953 and installed the Shah. You that's motherfucker. Just saying. I'm just saying. That was... That wasn't a good thing. And on that note, <laughs> dude, we're like almost four hours in. Oh, can I just say the one yeah. thing that I wanted to say before yeah, yeah, we yeah. set my favorite wrestling storyline ever was when, uh, during the first Iraq war is, that we were just talking about is uh, Sergeant Slaughter defected and became a pro-Iraqi. <laughs> <laughs> like that was his thing, that he was the American soldier, because that was a big problem we had. No. <laughs> he was like, no. I realize Iraq is right. And then he was, oh my God, that's hilarious. So and that's people, hilarious. Look at him. He's getting the fucking. And then, oh, Jesus Christ. And dude, it was so easy <laughs> in 1991. It was so easy. Can we play it? Can we play it? Around the world. <laughs> and people are like, boo! Sergeant Slaughter betrays America. He conquered Kuwait. <laughs> 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 what an amazing, what an amazing what American move. American sergeant defected to <laughs> Iraq. This. this is amazing. What is he like, unwrapping? What is this boot? An Iraqi military boot? <laughs> People are so angry. <laughs> <laughs> what a ballsy move! Uh, uh, uh. I will wear your gift. Those are from Saddam Hussein. Yes, I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
right. It's over. <laughs> the podcast is over. That's amazing. All right. Bye, everybody.